2: Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, it's Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today, Tim Dillon. You're going to love this. You want to laugh? Stay tuned. This guy is hilarious. He has been called the funniest philosopher of his generation, a genius. He was named one of the top 10 comics you need to know by Rolling Stone in 17, New York's funniest uh, at Caroline's in 16. And he's been putting out hilarious videos on social media that caught my attention and made me fall for this guy. He's just he's spectacular. Did a thing on um, the Viking on the Capitol Hill riot, which I had to say, you know, like that day we all needed a laugh and he put it out like the day after and uh, sort of broke the frost in a way, which I really appreciated. He did a great bit on Ilaria Baldwin, who he's got some thoughts on. I'll ask him. Um, And he's just sort of a he is a social philosopher. He was big on Joe Rogan. He went on there not long ago with Alex Jones. Perhaps you heard news of that. Um, But I think you're going to like him a lot. So we'll get to Tim in just one second. But first, let's talk about the zebra. The zebra is going to make your life better and easier. You know, when you look for insurance, it's kind of a pain in the neck, isn't it? I mean, like, who knows? It's like you start calling company after company. You have to, like, go through all this personal information in order to get accurate quotes. That's where the Zebra comes in. They will make this process super easy and almost pleasant. When you use the Zebra.com, insurance will finally feel like it's in black and white. Get it? No more confusion. Just honest rates from real companies. The Zebra is actually the nation's leading insurance comparison site for car and home insurance, and they can help you save money. Today, so easy. You go to thezebra.com, you just answer a few questions to compare accurate insurance quotes for free. The Zebra is gonna protect your personal information and make sure there are no hidden fees or surprises along the way. And you can secure your insurance from thezebra.com or if you prefer to do it by phone, do that. And you can speak with one of their licensed insurance agencies. How much money can you save on car or home insurance? Visit thezebra.com slash Kelly to find out. That's T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash Kelly for insurance in black and white. Check it out.
0: Tim Dillon, how are you? Good morning, Megan. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I, uh, I've been following you on Twitter and you're so funny. And uh, just the, the chance to talk to you was obviously what I was going to jump at. But then I started to read up on you and learn more about you. And I love Uh this description. I love this (laughs) conservative leaning gay man from Long Island who says the average citizen might describe his aesthetic as retired detective.
1: (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) I think that's I think that might cover all the bases.
2: (laughs) What does that mean? Retired detective? Like Lenny Briscoe kind of?
0: I, I look like a guy who, you know, has left the force, but he's always been tortured by one case and he sits at a bar and he just wants to, you know, get back in to solve that one cold case from 10 years ago that haunted him. I feel like <laughs> that's what the way I sound. That's the way my voice sounds. That's the aesthetic I have. Just kind of that tortured Irish guy.
2: <laughs> I'm thinking of like Sipowitz, remember? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Of course I do. I used to watch that show every day. I love that show.
2: But I think we're being too unkind to you because you're actually a handsome guy. You are. You do. Well, not. That's I very see sweet. A retired detective, I guess. Like maybe a little slovenly.
0: I do the best I can for the Irish. You know, the Irish are a race of people. We will never compete, I think, with the other races in just pure looks. Uh, that's why we're funny and we tell stories and we're fun to be around. And I think everybody's got so I think I try to do the best I can with what I have with fair skin that's prone to get red. And, you know, I mean, this is just you got to do the best you can with the Irish aesthetic.
2: I can relate to all of that. All of it. I mean, thankfully, I'm a gal. So, you know, I wear makeup and I can make myself look better. But there is sort of a curse that comes with the Irish heritage. But there's balance in life. You're right. Like you tend to be funny, You tend to be a good storyteller. um, And if you can't laugh at yourself, you get kicked out of your family as as an Irish kid.
0: That's exactly right. You have to be able to roll with the punches.
2: And you have to be able to throw a lot of punches too. That's
0: ex- that's exactly right.
2: And that's fine. You know, I was joking the other day that there's a uh, Bridget Fetissy was on and we were talking about how no Irish person has ever gotten offended at anything. You'll never hear the Irish complaining about a joke at their expense because we're built to laugh at ourselves and to think stuff like that is funny and I just I have yet to meet the Irish person who can be offended by anything.
0: Yes, that's true. I hope that stays true. I mean, my family, I remember that uh, this was a tough family that uh, loved each other but would fight uh, and would argue and they would debate and there were people that were right-wing people and left-wing people and people that didn't believe at all in politics and people that were conspiracy theorists and and it never mattered so it's it's always strange to me in this new climate where if you disagree with someone you're supposed to exile them from your life or your community it that doesn't hold water with me at all because I just remember growing up in these crazy environments with these large families where no one agreed on anything and everything was still okay. Mm -hmm. So I I think this idea that words are going to bruise you or uh, they're going to do serious damage that you can't recover from. I don't understand that at all. I'm 36. That's probably generational, but a lot of it is my upbringing where it's like, you know, a lot of people uh, said a lot of things, and then everybody kind of made up and 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 put it past them.
2: Exactly right, and and it's part of sort of it's linked to I think being on the Radical Honesty program, where I wouldn't say no feeling is spared growing up, but it's pretty close. I mean, we definitely my family and most of the Irish families I know lean towards just saying it how it was. And I'll, I'll give you one example. Tell me if you can relate to this in your own upbringing, but my family. Um, wound up becoming a blended family as I I lost my dad to a heart attack when I was in high school and my mom got remarried four years later to a guy who had three kids and he had lost his wife to cancer. So the three kids on his side and the three kids on our side wind up together and he had um, two sons and a daughter and the daughter at the time was around 15 when she first came into our family and uh, she was a big talker. She liked to talk, they're Irish too. She talked a lot. A lot. <laughs> my brother, <laughs> my older brother, sat next to her at dinner one night, and he interrupts her and he says, "Why are you telling me this story?" And he says, "Look, if we're going to be in the same family, you're going to have to learn how to cut to the chase." <laughs> and this yeah. girl's like, looking I'm like, "What the hell?" But you know what? He did her a favor because everyone's got to have yeah. that skill in life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there's something. Beautiful about the Irish experience, where it's like we feel like we're always underdogs, and I think that's part of it, right? So I think part of the Irish experience, and my family's really—I, you know, my grandfather came over from uh, Cork, and my nanny was from Galway, and they—I mean, he came over at four years old, and they were tough, and he grew up poor, and I mean, really poor. Like they would move every time the rent was due, and I mean, he he had a large family. And, uh, you know, he built a business. He ended up being a general contractor. It took him a long time, but he built a, a big, you know, beautiful house that he lived in in Long Island. He was a devoutly religious guy. He was very tough. He, uh, you know, I remember my father got in a bar fight. I think this was in my father's nose. My father's nose is still a little crooked. <clears throat> he called my grandfather and he goes, you know, if you, if you gave me $5,000, dollars I could fix my nose. I think my grandfather was like, well, it's just a good thing you're not a model and hung up. So it was kind of <laughs> like figure it out. You know, my grandfather had that attitude of like, he was a loving guy and he was generous, but he was also like, you got to figure your life out. Like, I think he had six, seven children. One of them died of cancer, sadly, but he was, it was old school. Like it wasn't, you You weren't going to get your hand held. Uh, you were loved and you were supported, but you were also expected to kind of go out and fight the way that they fought for whatever you wanted. And I think that that is, you know, kind of that enduring quality of like that underdog, you know, mentality that Irish people have, you know, and obviously Mm -hmm. we're not nearly, we weren't nearly as disadvantaged as African-Americans or, or or other groups of people, but I mean, the Irish kind of had a little bit of a time of it when they came to this country. So I think that that is um, part of uh, what makes us, into these uh, storytellers. We talk a little too much. We, we make a lot of jokes. We're, we're trying to get a seat at the table. And I think that the way we try to do that is by wrestling the attention away from who's ever speaking. And I mean, whatever we have to do, I mean, I have aunts that will stand up in the middle of a family party and start singing a song forcing everyone to just stare at them. I mean, my aunt <laughs> would sing memories from cats. And I mean, she's a horrible <laughs> singer, but we would all just every year, we knew memories was coming when she had had a few drinks and we all just had to sit and listen to that. And she would just out of nowhere, start belting out, you know, midnight. And we'd all okay, here we go. <laughs> so it, it really was just a fight for attention. I think part of that, I guess, is that we all kind of feel like we're underdogs in a way.
2: Mm-hmm. So do you have that? Do you Do you love attention?
0: I do. I mean, I do. And, you know, when you look back at my kid video, it's embarrassing. When I was two or three years old, I would be hamming it up in front of the camera and doing everything I can. I'd dump ice cream on my head. I'd do anything I could to get attention. You know, most comedians have that in them where they just wanted to be the center of attention. And no matter, you know what, I mean, it's hard to watch because they're just insufferable when you watch them because it's a kid who's just demanding everyone looks at him when he was two. Three, Mm -hmm. just going, I want all the eyeballs on me.
2: So, but how does that parlay from, oh, Tim's so funny. You know, he's a class clown. God, that guy's hilarious into, oh my God, he's trying to make a career out of it.
0: Yeah. Well, you fail at a lot of other things. So that's important. I think failure is important and we don't ever talk about failure. Every motivational speaker goes out and tells you how to succeed. And that's kind of maybe puts people at a disadvantage. I think you have to try the things that you're not suited for before you find the thing that you are suited for. And I tried a lot of things. I mean, I was in sales. I I tried to be in finance. I was I was trying to live this life that wasn't for me. I I love sales. Like, I still like salespeople. I read about business and, you know. But it wasn't for me. I wasn't as good at it as I could be because I didn't work hard at it. And the reason I didn't work hard at it is I didn't really love it. And then when I found comedy when I was 25, I started pretty late, I found the thing that I loved enough to work so hard at that I would kind of sacrifice the rest of my life to just get good at this and to be good at it. Cause when I was on stage, I felt like this is where I belonged, but it took a while to get there. It took, you know, community college and it took debate club and it took majoring in political science, and then dropping out because, and no offense, but all the people that were in politics and journalism were insufferable. None so of them were true. fun. It was, none of them were fun. I remember, we would go to these debate tournaments and I beat these two girls that were on their way to Harvard. And I was, I was at a community college, you know, and they were crying afterwards. And I was like, you know, and all these guys just wanted to talk about politics endlessly all night. And I was like, and I, you know, me, I'm trying to make jokes. I'm trying to have fun. And everybody would took themselves so seriously. And I was just turned off by it. I'm like, I don't want to spend my life, with these people. And then God, listen, we know that they exist and there's a reason for them, but I was just totally like turned off by that. So I'm like, well, I don't want to be in, and I thought I was going to be in that. I thought I was a debate guy and I was good at debate. I was really good at being in debate. And I was like, I want to, I'm going to be in politics. I'm going to run a presidential campaign. I'm going to be, you know, whatever the case may, may be. And, uh, you know, I was running around, I was like, you know, 19 years old, uh, you know, talking about how we have to honor our commitment to the people of Iraq. You know, I had no idea what I was talking about, but I'm like, this seems, <laughs> I'm like, this seems, I was like hardcore evangelist of George W. Bush, thought, you know, thought he was great, thought everything we were doing was phenomenal. Now I look back on it and I'm like, yes, yeah, some of that probably wasn't the move, but I really was going hardcore into politics. And then I took a step, t- took a step back and I was like, all right, I'm going to do finance. I'm gonna be a business guy because I just want to make money. And then I realized like I don't love money enough, sadly like I love making a good living but like I don't love money enough to make my life just about money. So mm-hmm. then at 25 years old, after the um, uh, the, the you know 2008 when the the, the the market had collapsed, I was like, let me just see if I'm funny and see if I can be funny professionally, which I didn't even know what the route to it was. I had no, there was no blueprint. So I got into it at 25 when I kind of had nothing else going on. And I spent the last 10 years just getting as funny as I could on on every platform that I could.
2: That sounds terrifying. I mean, I, first of all, I can relate to the first part so much, your experience of politics and, and debate and media. Um, and actually just listening to you explain it, just I was like, oh, my God this is my life too. I just wasn't as smart as you <laughs> yeah. were to get out. You know, I just, I spent so many years in it thinking like, why is everyone looking at me? Like I'm being inappropriate yeah. again. You know, I just, right. I used to say I'm a in a China shop, right? That's how you feel. <laughs> I, think,
0: I think you did well. I think in fact, I wasn't as smart as you were to keep going maybe.
2: But feeling like a fish out of water is what I'm saying. Like you feel like, yes. I don't know why, but I don't, these people are looking at me like I'm inappropriate and I think I'm hilarious.
0: Right, right, right. I just remembered like going out after debate tournaments and we would like, you know, sit down at these restaurants and I was like, okay, so the debates are over, right? And then they never would end. I mean, it would never end. It would never end. So I was like, does this ever, can we ever just goof around? Can we ever talk about anything else? Life is about more than politics. And this is something I tell people now. Life is about more. I mean, you know, my aunt called me the other day. She goes now that, you know, cause she was like hardcore, like she would call me every day. Trump is uh, the worst thing that's ever happened to us, and blah blah blah. And coronavirus is killing every human being that's ever lived. And I'm like, okay, thank you. I don't need this, uh, you know, negativity. But I mean, every day she would call. And then finally, Biden got inaugurated, and she called me. And she goes, you know, me and your uncle, we went bird watching today, and there were hawks in the trees. It was beautiful. And I'm like, you could have been doing that for the last four years. Like right. there were hawks in the trees. You chose. To be miserable for four years, you chose that. And so to me, I'm like, there's just more to life than this endless... Because most people, you're never going to meet Nancy Pelosi, most of us. You know, I have uncles that, you know, Nancy Pelosi is the center of everything that bothers them. And I'm like, this is mm-hmm. you'll never meet this woman. You're letting mm-hmm. someone affect you who you'll never meet and who has a, has some degree of control over you, but not nearly as much as you think. I mean, truly... Not you. There's a lot you can do completely (laughs) that doesn't involve what Nancy Pelosi does or doesn't do or says or doesn't say. So to me, I've always been like there's more to life than politics. And the people that were deeply into politics never felt like that to me. They were always like, no, this is the be all end all. And I'm like, this is so weird. You get a certain amount of time on this planet, and you choose one team, and somebody else chooses another team, and you just fight forever, and that's it that's the only experience you want to have and that that felt very empty to me and not fun and i love having fun and that just wasn't fun
2: so it reminds me of when i i lived in dc for a little while and uh, i used to go out to the happy hours there and this is you know i was much younger i was whatever 30 around there and um you'd get these guys coming over to you in the in the bar first of all all the women would be wearing sweater sets with pearls and i was like right. what right what right and then all the guys uh would come over and, and like in their suits these are like young aides to congressmen on capitol hill and everyone would assume you knew who their congressman was it's like i never i never even heard of him i certainly never heard of you and i never even heard of your congressman so i'm not impressed and they would put their hand out and they to, to meet you and they would shake your hand or they, they would shake it hard you know like they were trying to impress you with their muscle and say right. things like and how are you enjoying washington and i'm like oh my god i am never letting this guy get on top of me Ever
1: right
0: <laughs> yeah d c is too much it's a great city to perform comedy in because it's like everyone there is just morally compromised, and it's great to just point out everybody in the audience and uh, imagine you know what they do for a living it's a lot of fun to perform in that city. But to me it was never a city that I could live in. I was just like I love New York because people in New York talk about real estate and food. I mean, that's really what any everyone in New York talks about. They go, Who got what apartment, where and how much, and why, and how many roommates or no roommates and who's buying a condo and who's got the and it's all about real estate and it's all about where you live and they talk about neighborhoods and they talk about food. They took up we have, you know. Brutal debates about restaurants, and you know you you got to go to this place. No, this Pizza Supreme is better. No, they were good six months ago. They changed the dough. It's all over now. The whole thing. And we just had these brutal fights about food and about neighborhoods. And that to me was very fun and very local, and it affected you. And and, uh, and that's what people talked about in New York. They talk about money, and and DC is all about power and politics, and everybody wants to have a prestige position. And to me, it was all like. I don't know, it was just it wasn't funny. I don't like political comedy. like I do a lot of social comedy, right? So like I took a lot of a, a lot of cultural things, and I, I certainly touch on politics and stuff. but like that blatantly political comedy never really was my thing. like i I respect the people who do it. It's very hard to do it right. But to me, it just divides the audiences immediately, mm-hmm. and I always look at like the larger truth that's buried under this kind of horse race political. You know, angle that ever, that that a lot of people are going for now. So I, I always was like, not so much into DC, but I love it's it's probably my favorite, and ironically, it's my favorite city to perform stand up comedy in, and because there's a lot of tension there, and yeah. tension releasing tension is what comedians should strive to do, and that city is always tense, and when you can break that tension, it, people are really grateful.
2: Oh, those poor people are desperate to laugh. They're not allowed to laugh at all anymore. Everything's so deadly serious and, and most it's of true. all themselves. To your point right. about New York, I can tell you it's it's the only city I've ever lived in or or visited where it's like before somebody comes, like somebody comes over to your house for the first time and before they leave, it's understood by all involved that they will be getting a full tour of your apartment.
0: They will be they will, yes. looking
2: at the master bedroom, the master bathroom. Yes, It's just understood. Yes. Of course, I want to see your real estate.
0: Yes, you become a realtor. You talk about how much it costs. People have no problem in New York going, let me ask you what you pay. I mean, right? there's really no problem asking you <laughs> what you paid. There's something fun about that to me. It's kind of fun. Real estate's hilarious to me. Uh, I, I always think I think it's very funny. I think it's silly. I, I, I think the, a lot of my videos that I do online are silly. They're goofy, right? I mean, like, so yeah. to me, it's like, you know, the the discussion of bedrooms and bathrooms and finishes and marble and granite and Uh, Windows are very funny and kind of they make me laugh. It's ultimately meaningless, right? It's utterly mean. I've lived in big houses and small houses I've lived in. I've had really nice cars and I've driven beater cars and, you know, obviously it's better to have more money, but my actual day to day happiness doesn't really change. If I have good friends and I'm laughing and I feel like my career is going well, it, where you live doesn't, it's not as meaningful as people make it out to be. But I just love, you know, the way people make it into the, the most important thing in the world is, you know, your, your view. Somehow you've arrived. So what, right.
2: just hearing you talk and, and actually having seen you before, something that's standing out to me is you sound happy. Like, yes. I, I don't think of happy when I think of comedians. I think of more the sad clown and like they're wrestling and they're tortured and they sort of they're dark, but they're awesome and they're funny and they're clever and they're really witty about society and observers of it. But happy's not a word that comes to mind, I guess, maybe ironically, given what they do for a living. Do you think you're an anomaly in the comedy circuit?
0: No, I think, well, I'm happy now things are going well. <laughs> Like, I think I'm happy now that I'm, 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 I'm in a good place creatively. The things I'm proud of what I make. I'm proud of the show I do every week, the podcast. I'm, I've gotten great opportunities to, to do some of the biggest podcasts in the world and guys like Joe Rogan have helped me out tremendously. And so the happiness I think just comes from the idea that I worked really hard at something for a long time, but now it's starting to like come together and I have the freedom to do the things that I want to do. But like, I think comedians, I don't think it's that we're miserable, but I do think it's that we're all sensitive and we all are noticing things. We all feel things uh, and we all have to convert that to funny. So if I am upset, I convert it, try to convert it immediately to humor, which can be healthy, but it also cannot be because it's a great way to it's a great way to just, you know, not acknowledge your problems and not fix them is by making them funny. And this is the real problem with a lot of comedians. It doesn't matter what the problem happens to be. You can easily make fun of it and not really address it. So there is that problem with comedians and that's just been forever, right? That could be your love life, uh, your relationship to drugs, alcohol, food, depression, anything, your family, your past traumas. Like we make a living by making those things funny. And a lot of times that's just putting a band-aid over them and not really addressing them. So I think that's where the like sad clown comes from is the idea that we make things that bother us funny. So, but they're still there. They still bother us, but that's kind of what we do. That's how we come to be funny. So I think I'm happy because I think I'm I'm grateful. I'm lucky. I think a lot of us are are, are lucky to do what we do. I think I'm lucky. I worked very hard to have the job. I also feel lucky to have the job, right? So I feel like I'm lucky. I have all the qualifications to do what I want to do. And, you know, so that that makes me, you know, when you, when you see what people go through all the time, um, and this is what's really been lost in this new, you know, uh, climate that we're in where, you know, when you, when, you, when you look at who's a real victim, who's truly in trouble, who deals with things with their own health or with their own family in these really tough situations, uh, the majority of people out there are very lucky. The majority of us, I don't care where you come from or what you're dealing with, the majority of us are just lucky to be here to live here to be in this time to have our health to have functioning brains to be able to work and pursue things that we want to do so we can't ever lose sight of that now a lot of times we do lose sight of that because we're human beings but i think i try to remind myself that that at baseline here i'm pretty lucky to be a comedian for a living in the year 2021, and to be able to earn money while many people are are in trouble and suffering because we have this horrible situation right now with with a shutdown. And so I I think that's where I try to derive the happiness from, just perspective.
2: Back to Tim in one second, but first, you never
0: thought COVID could cost you your
2: home, right? Well, it could, because cybercrime is up 75% in the midst of all these lockdowns. 75%, it's like the cyber criminals are bored and they found a new crime to commit and you're vulnerable. By far, the most serious cyber crime to worry about is home title theft. And most people have never heard of it. Cyber criminals, foreign and domestic, are now after our homes. And it's a lot easier to steal them than you'd think. No, not the bricks and mortar, but the title documents to our homes. They're all online now. And these thieves will find your home's title and then forge your signature on a quick claim deed stating, oh, you sold your home to them. Then they'll take out loans on your home and leave you in debt. You don't even know any of this has happened until the late payment or eviction notices start arriving. Insurance doesn't cover you for this crime and neither do common identity theft programs. And that's why you need to protect your home with home title lock. The instant home title lock detects someone tampering with your home's title, they will help shut it down. You go to HometitleLock.com, register your address to see if you're already a victim, and then use code RADIO to receive 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HometitleLock.com, HometitleLock.com. So what do you make of... The, you know, all these late night comedians going exactly the opposite way, right? They turn themselves from people who make you laugh into people who make you upset and sad, angry. You know, I haven't watched Colbert yeah. during the entire Trump presidency, right. but I see the clips and Kimmel. God, they're so dark now.
0: Something happened, and I, I've talked to a lot of smart people out here in LA, which I'm getting out of soon, going right to Texas. But uh, I've talked to a lot of smart people here, and, and we, because I've, I've always been interested in, the, in where this started. And, it, and I think that it might have started with when Tina Fey did that really brilliant and funny impression of Sarah Palin on mm-hmm. SNL. Um, and it may have also started with Jon Stewart, an equally brilliant guy who did a very funny show called The Daily Show. But what started to happen eventually, uh, you know, was that people started to believe that their job uh, was to be a teacher was to be uh, somebody who um, would affect culture with uh, political humor, and that it would not be for the sake of being funny I mean there's been political humor forever, and I'm sure some of it was written with the intent that it would would you know affect people, but there became this idea, and it became rather explicit that the job of a comedian was to move the needle in a meaningful way in the political world and I don't know where that happened but those are two good examples of where it may have began where it was that Sarah Palin because that nailed Sarah Palin that that impression was viral and people talked about it and people were saying that you know I don't know if she could recovered from that it was so good and it was kind of right on and then of course Jon Stewart uh, did, did kind of a great job at, at, at being this, this, this political comedian that did provide real information. But, but what has happened, like everything else, is that it has, it has grown into a, a cottage industry of people who are putting their opinion in front of their comedy. And this is a big problem because it's not always funny. And in fact, it rarely is funny. And that's why you just use the word dark, which is a a great word for it, because when you're putting your opinion out first and you're not worrying about the content, the humor, you're not recognizing the humanity of your opponents. You're not seeing the other side, which is what comics should always do. It's how you can really be funny, especially about meaningful topics, is looking at someone else's. I mean, there's not a great lawyer out there who, who who can't argue the other side of their case? I mean, it's essential, right? It's the whole point of a, of of a great attorney, a great litigator, is that they know what the other side's going to do and they understand the strengths of the other side. And and I think he's a great comedian whose job is to make you know large numbers of strangers laugh. You have to kind of have some baseline respect for them as human beings, and when we turn everything into this endless you know festival of politics and politicized identities we forget that the people that disagree with us are human beings and that those people um you know are not enemies they're people that for whatever reason have a different experience than you so when i watch those late night hosts i go they're they at, at the 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 best way to say it is they're not really doing their job and they're they've they've carved out this, you know, group of people that want to hear them say things they agree with, similar to somebody on maybe Fox or MSNBC. And to me, it's not interesting and it's and it does get dark and it gets sick because they don't want to do it. You know, when you look at Jimmy Kimmel, he doesn't really want to do it. You're just making so much money and you become a cog in this Hollywood machine and you're getting twenty million dollars, thirty million dollars. You you're expected to do, it, but they don't want to do it. You could see it in their faces mm. that nobody got into comedy to lecture people about what who to vote for. Nobody. i you surprised to yeah. see
2: like that? These guys being treated as these sage advisors in this serious suit. I mean, to me, it's just it's an- antithetical to what a comedian generally looks like and projects like and wants to be perceived as.
0: Yeah. Well, what it is is also, you know. People have Google. People can remember that Chelsea Handler made a living doing race material. And now Chelsea Handler does documentaries about white privilege. Jimmy Kimmel had a show called The Man Show where they, like, you know, did wet t-shirt contests and now he's talking about health insurance. Stephen Colbert did a show where he was a a very funny, you know, kind of guy that was impersonating Bill O'Reilly. And then now everything, you know, and he got away with a lot of saying a lot of crazy things because it was satire and it was very funny. And now... A lot of these same people exist. They act like satire doesn't exist. And if you say something, you're dead serious about it. And if it, you make a racial joke, you're a racist. Or if it's a homophobic joke, you're a homophobe. Or if you make a joke about trans people, you're diminishing your trans identity. And all of these people are very Googleable. They've all had long careers. None of them felt this way years ago. And I mean, I don't mean, you don't have to go back 10 years. You can go back right before Trump got into the primaries like this is a new relatively new phenomenon in mass where all of these people are every day tweeting i mean i have comedian friends of mine that are tweeting about trade agreements all day and it's like what are you doing they're tweeting (laughs) at mayor garcetti they're like you better these people have roommates they're on drugs it's like and they're going what's the budget of la the cops better be not getting more than this percentage of the budget i'm like the budget you can't (laughs) afford a car so it's 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 a it's a mind virus. Truly, it's a mind (laughs) virus. And people like me have been, I think, pretty, pretty well received kind of pointing it out because a lot of people are going like, oh, yeah, man, that's kind of the way I feel like they grew up watching these comics. These guys were very funny. Colbert, Kimmel. These guys were really, really funny people. But now I think they feel that for whatever reason that that isn't their job. They have to do what they're doing.
2: And I read something. Uh, it was it was you. It was, a, it was a bit you were doing about him saying something like the c- comedians are the ones who get on stage and basically say we're fucked up, we're fat, we're we can't stop yes. doing horrible things. It like only a psychopath would look at us and say
0: yes, show me the way. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, could you imagine going out to a nightclub and then asking the guy on stage for tax advice? We're, we've lost our minds here. <laughs> I mean, this is completely insane. I don't go to my dentist laying the chair and go, let's be funny now. You know, people got to specialize in things. You can't be everything. And this this flies in the face of a lot of the ethos of young people today who want to be everything. You know, they're like, I want to be a YouTuber and a rapper and a, a, a stock mogul. And I want to start an app. And I want to be a venture capitalist. And I want to be an artist and write three books. And I want to be a chef and have a line of, I mean, it's like, guys, we need to get good at a thing here. And then we need to start there, and then maybe move on. But like this idea that you would ever look at the comedian. Uh, hopefully, we say things that are smart. Hopefully, we say things that are funny. Hopefully, we make you think. I didn't tell anyone to vote. I am mean, this with i got flack for this. People like people go like this to get a voting plan. I had comedians were going on Twitter, going get a vote, get a voting plan. What? what are we doing? What is what is a voting plan? Get get to the poll and vote. I mean, you all got a Popeye's chicken sandwich. You can vote. Like, this idea that no one knows how to vote. We got to come up with a plan. We got I, I, to, And the idea that I, who put on wigs and say crazy things and I'm funny and a goofball and, and admit all these embarrassing things about my life, I'm going to tell you who to vote for. It's just not my job. It's not my job. If you want me to do that, then go somewhere else. Go find another person who's going to tell you, to vote, and then it's so important to vote. It's just to me, it's patronizing. I'm not patronizing you. If you're going to vote, you're going to vote. If you're not going to vote, you're not going to vote. It's absolutely none of my business. You know, it would be insane. It would be like me being on stage and like, you know, you know, looking at my audience and pointing at a guy in the audience and going, "Hey, why don't you call your brother? <laughs> have you spoken to your brother recently? Why don't you call him? What about your wife? Have you gone out? Have you taken her out? It's like, dude, what am I a life coach? I'm trying to be goofy.
2: Yeah. You know, it it reminds me of um, I was talking to my decorator the other day, and he's amazing and he's awesome. And he yeah. was he submitted this plan, and I'm like, yeah, approved. And he and his team are looking at me like, really? And I'm like, look, I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to decorating a house, I don't have very good taste. I don't know what right. I'm doing. You want to talk about Syria? We could talk about Syria, but that I know how right. to do. But I don't know how to decorate a house. And they said. No one has ever said this to us in thirty
0: years of doing this, right? You're right, because everyone's a be designer. Expert. Yeah, and we're, I mean, you if know? you leave it to us, I mean, we'll have lace curtains. Everything will look like a funeral. You know, I'm very bad at it too because as an Irish person, I think everything should look like a wake. So I'm like, we should just have big curtains and big couches where everyone can sit down and tr- cry. But uh, yeah, everyone's <laughs> a specialist in everything. So the, the the problem is, you said it, and I said it, dude. I do it too. I go to. Ra- I'm one of the only dudes. Who goes to a restaurant and I will go, you pick, to the waiter or waitress. And they're like floored. I do this because you know why? I go, whatever you bring to the table, I'm going to eat it, okay? And I'm going to say it's not good. So you just choose. I'm going to complain about it probably on my show. Not to you. I never do it to them. But I'm gonna go, I'm gonna trash it on my show. I'm gonna tweet about it. I'm gonna say I was very disappointed. And then I'm gonna come back <laughs> no. next week and probably have the same thing. So it doesn't really matter. But I go to restaurants and I go, I I, I, I love the chef tasting menu. In New York City, we just went out to dinner all the time, spent absorbent amounts of money, sat there for three hours, just drank martinis and ate food. I just have friends that we never went near clubs. We just, we just sat in restaurants for three hours, and they would just bring us food, and we would just talk and drink. And I love the chef's tasting menu because I go, I don't know what he should make or she. You make it. Bring it to me. I'll eat it. And the idea of that is is crazy now. Everybody now is a specialist in everything. And they're ready to tell you how you should do it. I mean, it's, it'll be like me telling you how to be a journalist. I don't know the first thing about interviewing anybody, about doing research. Like, it to me, it would be like, for me to tell you how to do it, it would be completely absurd. I did red-eye. I did red-eye. It was fun. And red-eye at Fox, like, comedians would come on, and we'd sit next to John Bolton. And they'd go, <laughs> well, Tim, what do you think about Syria? I go, <laughs> Syria? Syria? I don't, I don't have shows there. Like, I mean, (laughs) it's just, I I mean, it's like I can make fun of it and I will. And maybe I have an intelligent take on it, but I mean, it's like I haven't done the research and neither is anyone else. Neither is Chelsea Handler. They have also not done the research.
2: She's another one. I don't want to hear from anymore. I'm so over Chelsea. I mean, I was, ne- I was never under Chelsea Handler, but I, I really right. would like her to be quiet. Um, I can't stand her brand of, quote, humor, which, as you point out, is really just lecturing all the rest of
0: us on how we're pieces of shit. And she's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, she was also mean for a decade. And now we're supposed she was like mean. And she was like, she her is. funniest was just being mean. Like, so I get it. Like, she was just like, I'm mean, I'm drunk. Every guy I've met's penis is too small. And and no one has money like I do. And it's like, okay, we can get into this. And I I thought that was bad. Now she's like talking about the Gaza Strip. I'm like, oh, can you go back to that, please?
2: (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, that's you know, there was an article over the um, over the weekend. I guess it came out on Monday talking about the bomb premiere of SNL this week and how it's just not funny. Right. Because they their king left Trump. They they, yeah. they don't know what to do without him. They it was in the L.A. Times saying something like, um, "It was uninspired." They said it was unfunny, lazy, crude gags scattered about and forgettable sketches. They don't know yeah. what to do without him, and they don't want to touch. You know the the, you know the the, the, the king and queen, Biden and well, Kamala Harris. Yeah,
0: Kamala, right? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about SNL is like every guy that I knew and gal that that had like a working class background. Never got hired for that show. That show's staffed with collegiate, usually Ivy League, Northeastern liberal art school kids who aren't that, or their sense of humor is very specific. And, you know, I had really funny friends that, like, were garbage men that submitted packets to that show. I mean, great stand-ups make people laugh all over the country. And they never got into that show. Uh, and there's just this weird kind of they close ranks around a specific type of person uh, that can't have an opinion that, I mean, I remember I knew somebody that was on the show that wrote there for a year and he he brought up you know, I, I forget I think it was a Kennedy assassination, he brought up he said, yeah, there's a lot of people think there was something shady there, and the whole room kind of looked at him and just kind of dismissed him and he was bringing it up in the context of like, there's something funny but a joke it Was he wasn't launching into a like who killed Kennedy thing, but it was just the idea that you would have any opinion outside of a very mainstream kind of establishment take of, of, of liberal politics was so, was so alien to them that they're like, they looked at him like he was a QAnon lunatic. They're like, what are you talking about? So that show suffers from that problem of like, they want a very specific group of people and that's why they're getting the type of comedy they get.
2: Mm. Well, that's interesting because remember they had Trump. He he was the guest host and back in 2015 and then they, they felt responsible for him winning. And Jimmy Kimmel, I mean, Jimmy Fallon gave him, you know, a normal late night, what used to be a normal late night interview right. and he messed right. up his hair. And then spent the next four years self-flagellating over it because, you know, he got flack for it, the mainstream press, like, oh, my God, you gave him a pass. He's the devil incarnate. And you just sat there next to him laughing. And then Jimmy Fallon tried to play this role of a Stephen Colbert type, which was false and not believable. And he wasn't very good at it. And they're all like SNL and and some of these guys, they, they seem to bear this sort of guilt when it comes to Trump and I don't know, his rise to the top and now their responsibility to sort of give Biden, I guess, a pass, which so far is what SNL has done.
0: Well, it's also this weird delusion. It's like Trump had Trump's victory had nothing to do with SNL It had nothing to do with Jimmy Fallon. This is like, again, they they continue to center themselves as the most important things in the universe. Um, Trump's rise had to do with a lot of people who were very frustrated with. Business as usual politics. And and Trump, in my in estimation, is kind of a little bit of a huckster. Had some good ideas, didn't do much, but you know, loved himself, loved Twitter, loved the rallies. But like his rise is kind of very easily explainable. It has nothing to do with like Jimmy Fallon tussling his hair. It was the idea that we had Jeb Bush going against Hillary Clinton. People like, is this an oligarchy? We're sick of Bush's and Clintons. And here is a, a a bomb that we can kind of throw at this hopelessly corrupt system. And that bomb was Donald Trump, who was incredibly funny and would say things that nobody had ever heard a politician say. But this idea that no one really cares about SNL. I think that's what terrifies these people is that no one really cares. No one really cares about the tonight show. I mean, I can go on YouTube and find, uh, you know, videos, um, uh, that have more views, uh, than, than SNL gets or, and I could find them very, very quickly. Um, I don't think that those places are near, uh, the, the bastions of influence, um, that they used to be. And I don't think they're shaping culture in any way, really.
2: No, you're right. This is, we're seeing a sea change right now when it comes to comedy. And I've seen it in my business too, news where it's like the audience is moving from what used to be their only option, linear television, cable TV and so on to digital, to online where they're. Whatever your heart desires, it's there. You know uh, That's how I got to know you. I didn't see you on, yeah. on television. I saw you online and then started watching yeah. your sketches. They were hilarious. Yeah. So there's just this whole alternate universe that makes SNL less relevant. You'd think they'd be bending over backwards right now to reach out to a greater audience.
0: They're like cruise ships, right? So when you steer a cruise ship, you can only move it a few degrees one way or another. And then you have people that are coming into the game that are like speedboats. So it's like when the guy does a crazy Capitol riot... I have my producer, me and that producer can make a video uh, lampooning that. We could do it within 24 hours, put it out and it's seen by a million people. It was SNL, literally the funniest thing I've ever seen. Well, I, pre- so I appreciate funny. that. And I appreciate you retweeting it. But SNL then, that same idea has to go to a writer's room and a meeting. It has to get approved. It has to go through sales and legal and marketing. Uh, everybody network people have to okay it. It has to go through all of these channels and then it gets made at the end of the week, seven days afterwards. The news cycle's kind of, you know, it doesn't hit as hard as if you can get. So especially when it comes to comedy, speed is important. Brevity is important. Putting out something that's quick and doing something in a few minutes that's just as funny and as shareable as something that people take a week to do. So I think that is really where things are heading. They're heading to these very, you know, kind of independent, and obviously people always consolidate and it's human nature to kind of collaborate and consolidate. So I'm not saying that these shows will die per se or maybe they'll emerge in other forms but like you know you don't have a chance in hell to compete with people that are utilizing the internet in a smart way to build a fan base you just don't i mean it you know it, i i think that's the real thing that they're reckoning with right now on tv on comedy central all of these networks they don't know what to do because they are completely being outflanked by digital creators every day
2: mhm and and um Speaking of SNL and your online sketches, one of the funniest things I, I made my husband Doug watch it. It was so funny. I watched it twice just because it brought me such pleasure was your bit on Ilaria Baldwin, who, oh, yeah. who you say we're we're being far too tough on. We really need to go easier on
0: Ilaria. Yeah, yeah, she wants to be fun. Let her have a little fun. Let her make up an accent. Nothing and maybe this is the Irish thing. I can't for the life of me can I don't understand why certain things bother people. So if this woman wants to pretend to be again a high-end Hispanic woman, like she's not saying like I've had a rough life, and in, in fact it's quite the opposite. She's going, yes, I'm rich, and I and and she just wants to tell these fake stories from Spain that never happened, where she went <laughs> to the market with her grandmother and they got you know the jamon, we got the jamon, and <laughs> then we make the the, the 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 tapas. You know, let her do it. Like I mean, to me, I'm like. Let her do. I look at everyone on TV and I'm like, they've invented a version of themselves. Come on, Harris used to be Indian. Now she's black. She used to be a prosecutor. Now she's <laughs> the hell, gone with the police. She's. I don't know what the hell's going on. So everybody's inventing versions of themselves in this country constantly. Why do I have to care about Hilaria Baldwin? She's not making laws. You know, like I'm more worried about <laughs> Elizabeth Warren who goes. I used to be a Native American. This is a problem. So, like, <laughs> if everyone can just, these people all just invent things. Hillary Clinton's got hot sauce in her purse. She's getting shot at in Syria. I mean, it's like everybody's making stuff up all the time. I think Hilaria Baldwin is, like, the least of our problems.
2: Oh, that's, it's so true. It's an alternate viewpoint. And that's another person yeah. that SNL can't make fun of because the, their other problem is they're beholden to celebrity, celebrities. Who oh, they yeah. They love celebrities. They want to go right? to the
0: Hamptons. And, you know, everybody in SNL just wants to hang out with the people that they make fun of. And, like... I always make... But listen, I, my, my stuff's good-hearted. Um, I think that most people that we lampoon are fine with it. I do think that I'm a ridiculous character, so I think... I mean, there are people... I'm, you know, Megan McCain probably doesn't love me. I, I know that there's people that aren't necessarily thrilled with... I don't think any woman loves seeing me put on a wig and be them. I mean, so I mean, I get it, but I, it's also like we are literally just having fun and we're making... F- we're ha- we're doing funny things. And uh, so whenever, but we also are not courting, like our goal, my goal is to be a really funny person. It's not to get invited to a party in the Hollywood Hills and have everyone like me. I think Mm -hmm. if that became my goal, my comedy suffers tremendously. And I think SNL, a lot of the problem is they they have celebrity hosts, they want celebrities to feel comfortable, they want big musicians to come in. And so they're playing that game now of like, we want to make fun of celebrities, but also we want to do it in a way that still makes them Really love us and feel comfortable with us, and I just think that that's the route to 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 something that's not really funny
2: well, and now they're you know s n l you mentioned how the they have a preference for these northeastern well educated uh, advanced degree people, and you know that's true of nBC on a, sure. a larger basis too, and nbc news they they don't hire the people from the from the b tier schools, and I would suggest to you the news product shows that in a way that's not so great for getting numbers um but now SNL and other comedians have to worry about the the woke craziness going on right now because you yes. know how it is. You can't touch anything or you're a NIST. You're some sort of a NIST, racist, yeah. sexist, you know, take your, take your pick. And yeah. I remember just, just as like a small, I remember something like, I remember the stuff starting to creep into our language. I don't know, let's say 15 years ago. We're like, you can't say that or you can't do this. And I wasn't even trying to be funny i i didn't know this was considered a derogatory term but i got in trouble at one point on the air at fox because i referred to i said uh the, you know the guy committed the crime and they took him away in the paddy wagon and they were like oh you right. can't say that i'm I, like after i got off the air i'm like why not like it's it's racist against irish people i'm like back to our original point like no it isn't we're fine you know people will get yeah. one email from an irish person <laughs> but, we'll but also yeah. how how is it ra- and i learned at that time it, the paddy wagon is a, is like a reference to all the patties who are out there boozing it up, you know, having their too many beers and right. causing trouble getting arrested. OK, so you can't say. It. But now, of course, our woke world is go- has lost its ever love in mind. And it's it's crossed over. The latest story that was in the news this week was I don't know if you saw this, but how how Bernie Sanders is getting attacked as. It was his privilege, that photo of him with the big mittens that went viral. Yes. Um, There's some San Francisco high school teacher who wrote a piece. Yes. I pulled it. I pulled a quote. Here it is. Um, What she saw was a wealthy, incredibly well-educated and privileged white man showing up for perhaps the most important ritual of the decade in a puffy jacket and huge mittens. It manifests privilege, white privilege, male privilege, and class privilege in ways her students could see and feel, Tim.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, the, the term is mind virus, you know, the term is it's a disease. It's gone to the brain. It is spread. Uh, it is evasion of the body snatchers. It is a zombie movie. Uh, it is, it, I mean, it really truly is all of these things. Um, the way I feel about when you look at the entertainment, I go, people got to opt out, right? So if you're an entertainer and you're a funny person, you need to build your own fan base. You need to do it online until you're not able to do that. Uh, You know, you you have to just opt out. You can't play the game. You can't try to get on SNL. Uh, You can't try to get involved in mainstream comedy right now because it isn't funny. That's why a lot of people that have great thriving careers in mainstream comedy right now are not by their nature funny. They are... um, you know, careerists, they are people who know what to say, how to say it. They love office politics. Uh, they love virtue signaling. They love having the right positions and the right package. And those people Mm. do very well in writer's rooms at NBC and CBS. And, 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 uh, and those are the people who are, um, you know, running HBO and running Netflix. And those are the people that are, you know, for the most part, the, the dominant cultural mode is, you know, get go along, get along, don't ruffle feathers, don't rock the boat. And wherever the prevailing winds of the day are, you just got to have no opinions and not really, you got to be liquid, you got to take the shape of your container. So, and that's what Hollywood is. People don't realize that. Uh, Hollywood is people for the most part that don't have strong opinions, they are really able to cont, They're very malleable and they're able to, you know, whichever way the wind is blowing. Okay. Are we unwoke this year? Are we woke this year? Is this year the year of elevating uh, Asian people? Is it the year of elevating uh, Middle Eastern people? Is it the gay year? Is it the trans year? <laughs> they don't care. Their job is to to buy a $10 million house in Beverly Hills and pay the mortgage. So whatever does that. But if you're a comedian, you're a digital creator, you're a podcaster. You're an independent person. You have a voice, a perspective. You're funny. You need to just build your own fan base outside of that system because that system's collapsing. I talked to Barry yes. about this and we were talking about rebuilding society
2: or at least building a new thread in society so that normal people who don't want to live like this, as Douglas Murray put it, w- having to worry about secret trap doors opening up underneath right. you no matter what yes. you say and do. Um And the digital world is going to have to be a major part of that, right? Because I do think linear television has been overtaken by people like that. And most of us don't want to live like that or have to consume information or entertainment like that. So, but you, you know, as well as I do that the digital world, digital world is not secure either. And we saw that after the whole Capitol Hill riot with Parler being taken down and Trump being booted off Twitter. And now all these YouTube videos get censored. And I worry, I mean, I'm sure you do too about
0: what about yes. this lane?
2: This lane is not secure either.
0: I mean, it's a lane where I I'm I'm trying to make money in three to five years, and I'm trying to make enough money. That's part of the move to Texas. Cause you know, if I if I live in Cali, listen, I love Cali. I think it's a great city, but like, you know, Cali's like, okay, so then you get a house in Malibu, and then you gotta get a house in Bel Air. It's like it's a no-end to up, right? It's like you gotta constantly make more money every year. And be bigger and bigger and you make more and more compromises and more and more sacrifices. And so the, part of the move to Austin, Texas for me, uh, other than the fact that yeah, I think Joe Rogan, who's a good friend of mine, is going to try to really build a thriving community down there, is that I want to really make my money now because I, I want to save it. I don't want to give it all to Gavin Newsom. I want to save my money for the exact reason you said. I don't know what's coming down the pike. I'm a cynical guy by nature it terrifies me that a joke I make can be taken the wrong way and I can lose. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is build a digital infrastructure where I can have fans. I have an email list. I have a group of people that like what I do and I'm living in a state where I don't have to give all of my money away and the cost of living is less. And all of that is really because I don't know what's coming down the pike. And it is terrifying for anybody whose, whose career primarily exists online. I, that's why I, i you know, I, I try to just be funny. But again, is that going to be a defense, right? I mean, you know, if you tweet a man could not get pregnant today in 2021, you could lose your Twitter account. OK, I don't know what statement that's going to be in three years. So if you say, which was biological in the textbook and still is, uh, if you tweet something like that, you could lose your entire Twitter. So I don't know what that statement's going to be in 24 months, 36 months, but I'm, I'm not, my outlook isn't positive. Yeah,
2: I know. And now they're trying to crack down on podcasts too. So sure, soon, soon they're going to be going through the podcast with a, with a fine tooth comb, trying to find offensive stuff, which will be no problem whatsoever. Um, but you know, the, the reach of big tech, is getting
0: wider and more I think we got to get into tech, you know, so I'm in this, I'm on this app clubhouse all the time and I'm talking to people that are in the tech space. There is a group of people that do not want this in tech. They are by no means the majority, but there is a group of people that love comedy, like comedians understand freedom, know that people need freedom of expression. And I think for whatever reason, like they there, I hope they gain more power and I hope they get, uh, you know, more of a foothold on what's going on. I talk to some of these people. I know some of these people. I know billionaire founders of apps that text me. I love your video, this, that, and the other thing. So there are people in that space that are very successful that love you, that love, you know, the people that we know and respect. And like, so I'm hoping that there's a fight. Like, I'm, I'm hoping that there is some type of, you know, pushback against this. I just don't know how successful it'll be.
2: Oh no no! I mean, there is a fight. It's on. It's on on many fronts, right. not just on the digital world. I don't like right. that um, app you just mentioned. What's it called again? Clubhouse.
0: Clubhouse. I'm I don't like that because
2: it. it it makes me feel like I felt in high school when I didn't get invited to the cool
0: party. And you're like, I know, well, but I feel, but I, I did get invited. I know. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, my friends tell me they're like, I don't like the way it, s- it says about our society that you need an invite to get on because I didn't get an invite. And I go, okay.
1: <laughs> but it's
0: it's very child it's very childish and sometimes we have to indulge our base, carnal, childish, ridiculous id. You know, and that's uh, but it's hilarious. They'll let everyone on eventually, and you could you can get on. Meggie Kelly could clearly get on a clubhouse. It's just a funny, it's a it's a funny thing. And what's funny is. That you go on this and you are talking to these really, and they invite me in the rooms because I'm funny. So they talk about Bitcoin or venture capitalism for eight minutes and then I throw in a joke. So you need, you need somebody to keep it light a little bit, yeah. but it is very interesting because like, you know, you know, the founder of Bumble was on the other night and she goes, we got to put up guardrails online. And you know, as soon as I hear that, I get a little nervous because I'm like, well, what, a, what is her idea of a guardrail? Yeah. She means and, me. Right. She means me. Every now and then when I hear like a white billionaire female talk, I get a little nervous because they talk like this and they go, we're really just trying to ensure that we're living in an era of respect. And I'm like, oh, she wants me in jail. Like immediately (laughs) I go, this woman wants me in jail. I was hearing her talk going, she wants me in jail. But it's good to hear. I don't think they're monsters. I just think that like they want everyone to be nice. That's their whole thing. Because they all have hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't want to give you any of that. But they go, well, I want to be the good guys. I want you to be nice. Everyone's got to be nice. And that's terrifying. So, I mean, I hope that there's some pushback and that it's, you know, it's successful. I don't
2: know. I mean, I think we are starting to get – they've overplayed their hand. And I do think there's going to be a massive – uh, blowback, And I think Trump being gone is that's one good thing about him being gone is that they don't have yes. him to blame anymore. Now we just got to fight. Now the gloves are off. It's bare knuckle. Right. Let's go. You don't have anybody to blame this on. Just you punch me right. in the face and I'll punch you in the face and we'll see who's stronger, who has more people on their side, who has a better argument, who wants to, you know, who's going to control the direction of America, basically. Yes. Um, but I, you know, this big versus little thing and the, what you're saying about the tech uh, people who are on there, so some people who are secretly on our side is encouraging. But it 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 made me think of what's going on this week with GameStop and AMC and what do you, what's your take on that? Because I know you've been tweeting about it. I confess I don't totally understand it, but I guess I get that these are companies.
0: There's a Reddit called Wall Street Bats, our Wall Street Bets, which has got millions and millions of people in it, and all they do is discuss stocks. Okay, and basically they wanted to, they were looking at all these hedge funds that were shorting. Companies like GameStop, which means that they're essentially betting that the stock will fail and betting that you know the fundamentals of the business aren't good, and they're aggressively shorting GameStop and they're aggressively shorting AMC Theaters. And a lot of these guys on Wall Street bet that we could do a short squeeze here, meaning that like we can pump the stock's price up by buying it, forcing a lot of these big institutional players to have to cover their shorts, and they're going to be out a lot of money, and we're going to make a lot of money. And again, absolutely legal not insider trading, absolutely 100% legal. It is collusion, my favorite new word of the last three years, but they're doing it absolutely legally. This is what people do all the time. They go, here's a bet, here's a play, here's what we want to do. So they started to do that, and they pushed the shares of GameStop 400%. Yeah, it was at 347 bucks last Wednesday. Amazing. So then what happened was Robinhood, which is the app that it was a day trader app. A lot of the people were buying these shares of GameStop on this app called Robinhood. Robinhood then stopped trading on GameStop and AMC. It Stopped trading on those two stocks, which is illegal. Uh, it's the, Those companies are not being investigated by the FCC. There was no reason to limit trading, limit buying of those stocks. But when you look deeper into it, Robinhood sells all their user data to Citadel, which is a massive hedge fund. Citadel owns a lot of Robinhood's uh, data. So when you are using Robinhood, you think you're the customer, but you're actually the product. You know, somebody explained it like that. You're the product, your data, what you're buying, your information is being marketed to other hedge funds who are paying for the privilege of knowing what you do online in the market, because they want to know what retail investors are doing. So, it was very shady because Citadel also owned. I mean, coincidentally, they were doing a lot of the short squeezes on these companies, so they're losing billions of dollars. And then Robinhood, which again is you know one of Citadel's biggest clients in terms of you know selling data. They stopped trading on these stocks. So it looks very bad. And then the CEO of Robinhood said, well, it has to do with capital requirements and this, that, and the other thing. But a lot of people, myself included, goes, this just looks very shady. It looks like you're protecting your guys who are losing a lot of money by stopping people from trading. So it became a big guy versus little guy thing. And, of course, nothing is that simple because there was a lot of big guys like, like Mark Cuban or, or Elon Musk or Dave Portnoy, the head of Barstool Sports. Who were very much in favor of this, and there were um, and there were a lot of you know organizations uh, that purportedly are for you know the little guy quote unquote that were saying that this was a you know chaotic and this was fueled by Trump or, I mean whatever it's white supremacy I don't know but oh, I God. mean so there was a lot of people that you would expect what it really was is people saw an opportunity to make a little money and what then happened was. Um, nobody is really satisfied with the explanation of the Robinhood app CEO who basically changed the story a few times. And when you look at, uh, so a lot of people felt like, hey, it's another thing. It's like, hey, you don't like Twitter? Go on parlor. Okay. We're going to forget parlor. Okay. Hey, how about we figure out a way to make money in the stock market? And, you know, you know, wrest a little control back from these hedge fund guys. And then all of a sudden they shut off your ability to purchase stocks. So mm. I, it resonated with me on a level of like, number one, I thought it was funny because hedge fund billionaires are crying on CNBC. That's hilarious. Uh, number two, um, it wasn't the whole stock market was in trouble. It was hedge, big hedge funds that are in trouble. They'll be fine. Um, and this was to me, an example of the little guy causing a little bit of trouble. And I think that's good. I think that's okay to cause a little bit of trouble and to say, hey, we're alive. We're here. By the way, the election of Donald Trump is causing a little bit of trouble. It's people that are saying we still exist and we're going to do something that's a little crazy to get your attention. That to me is kind of what this uh, GameStop AMC stock thing was. It was people going, we are alive. We exist and we want you to notice us. And, And they were very successful at that.
2: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned somebody like Mark Cuban or Dave Portnoy because those are self-made guys. They didn't come from a bunch of dough where they had right. life made easy for them. They're scrappy, and um, it's probably no accident that they were like, "Yeah, this isn't bad." Let these guys, yeah. these amateur investors, let let them do what they want to do. This is pretty cool, and uh, score one for the little guys. But then yes. you have people like Jimmy Kimmel, who also was a self-made guy. But you know, we talked about him before, saying maybe this was Russian disruptors. I mean, like <laughs> you get these curveballs, like.
0: It's what? sad, man. It's sad to watch that. It's just the word, the term is like tragic when you watch him do that. Why? Because he doesn't want to say that. You could see it in his face that he doesn't want to say that. You know, he doesn't want to say that. This is, he's is in such a compromised position. I, I guess you just make so much money, you know, you start buying the things that money buys you you're living a life now where you have to you know constantly you know please the 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 overlords but it's just sad to watch a comedian dismiss people making money on the stock market as russian disruptors with absolutely no evidence like that is just sad to me i go man that's rough cuz that guy was really funny and he just doesn't look like he has any life in his face anymore when he talks he doesn't look alive and i think i tweeted like he doesn't look like he has a soul which was it's a little extreme but it really does he looks like just somebody who's his his sense of 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 of, of, of not only comedy but just being alive seems to have been robbed from him. So that's, that's what's sad to me. He just feels like his reactions aren't his own reactions. His words aren't his own words. He seems like a vessel and I don't know where he's getting this information from, but I imagine it's from people that have an interest in putting it out there. So
2: well, but to it's, me, to me yeah, it was scary. interesting because you, you picked up it. I heard you on Joe Rogan, you were talking a little bit about Ellen and yeah, and I, I think they're suffering from the same thing. Like you can get to the point where you've been so successful, you've made so much money and you sur- travel in these circles that are so elite that you forget your humanity. You forget who you are, forget how to yes. relate to real people and what matters to real people. And I agree with you. She she seems like she's not a nice person. He seems like he's crossed over to this place where he just wants to preserve this empire he's built. Um, you know, he says he won't even do he, he doesn't want people who disagree with him on things like the Second Amendment or healthcare watching his show. OK, fine. Right. You know, right. We, we won't. Um, and Ellen seems like she's in the same place. She's got like 75 houses all over the world, perfectly decorated. <laughs> right. She probably spends one day every three years in each one. And people are like, I don't know. She's really nice. It's like, well, guess what? I can tell you she's not. The people who who know her yeah. and who work for her have told us
0: they've told us the real story to me is always more interesting than the facade, and I think that's why I'm a comic versus another type of person. Like, I don't buy, when I see somebody, I don't buy it always, and I'm like, what is what's really going on there? And I know how hard it is to succeed, or even on the small level that I have in, in, in the entertainment business, very tough. Ellen's worked very, very hard to get where she has, but it's also like, she hasn't spent a ton of time thinking about other people. This is not how you get to be Alan DeGeneres, right? It's not how you get to be Chelsea Handler. It's not how you get to be Matt Damon. That, how you get to be that is focusing on yourself. You focus on your career, your craft. I mean, this is really the, like, nobody wants to talk about this, but like then you get to this position where you're thrust into the public spotlight and then you, you take on this role of like that everything you do is this altruistic pursuit and you're trying to help people and take care of people, but the reality is you don't really know how to do that. A lot more goes into that than you would imagine. A lot of your ideas aren't needed. You're not an expert. You've spent no real time doing research. You haven't met the people you purport to care about. That's the other thing. You haven't met any of these people. You don't know what they need, and so it's this crazy idea. It's very patronizing to believe that just because you have succeeded in this business, you've made oodles of money gobs of money that you somehow are in a better position to tell people what they need and what's going to give them a meaningful life it's like to me i've never had an interest in that i've never had an interest in looking at people and going here's what you need and and here's who should give it to you i i don't have an interest in that but i guess at a certain point when you've succeeded and you, you just you know and an interviewer asks you like hey how did you succeed you can't give the answer you can't be like well You know, I sacrificed so much for years and, I really didn't speak to my friends or family and I just networked. I had to step on a bunch of people's heads. You know, I barely ate. I hollowed my soul out. I learned to deal with rejection. I turned off all my emotions. The term is probably sociopath or at least I was on the spectrum. You know, I didn't feel for many years. I would go to Christmas and look at all these simpletons and be disgusted by them and I just started to become, you know, you can't do that. You have to go like, you know what's really important? The planet and global warming and the Green New Deal. So it's like, it's a lack of honesty. All of this comes from just a lack of honesty and and who's willing to accept it. And a lot of people are willing to accept the version of Ellen that she puts out to them because it's nicer and more comforting. But to me, I'm like, it's not interesting and it's certainly not funny. Can I ask you about um, who came to mind when you were saying that
2: was Prince Harry? Uh, because, right. you know, he, Meghan, he married Meghan Markle. And then not long ago, he talked about how he'd had an awakening, an awakening on on yes. white privilege and racism, yes. that that we're living in a world created by white people for white people. Meanwhile, this is Prince Harry. He's talking to right. us from his castle, or at least had recently left it. And he's trying to lecture right. the rest of us on white privilege. By the way, the guy w- was wearing a Nazi uniform for Halloween when he was a teenager. So it's like, okay, fine. He might have had a revelation. But like, maybe right. he's not the best person to be lecturing us on white privilege.
0: It's also like these people are wrong, like Japan's doing great, China's like there are lots of countries that have been thriving, like to say it's a world created by white people, you're talking about the the post-colonial era, you're ignoring antiquity, you're ignoring the ancient world, you're ignoring like these vast amazing empires that existed with Persians and Assyrians and all these, but it's the insane Africa, go back to Africa, like it's just this ignorance of history, it's like all history starts in the period of European colonialism, they're actually dumb. Like, I, I think that's also the problem. They're like, not that smart. It's like, it's really this whole thing. I see cancel culture and all this is like, it's the revenge of the mediocre. These are mediocre thinkers. They're mediocre, uh, academics and they're, and they're just elevating themselves, uh, by, you know, they're not that smart. I mean, if you look, listen to somebody like Camille Paglia, listen to somebody who's actually intelligent, whether you agree with them or not, these people are actually they have a command of, of history and what they're talking about. It's like to ignore the, the hundreds of years, thousands of years of history that predate all of your, you know, cute black and white assumptions about everything. It's, uh, it's absurd. It's just, it's again, it's an ignorance of history that's baffling. A lot of these people have it. To say that this is a world created by white people for white people, we all know that race is a major problem, you know, and, and has been forever. And it, it, it's not exclusive to white people, even though the white people certainly in this part of the world have have practiced it and limited people's rights. And we all know that that's bad and has to change. But at the end of the day, it, are you diminishing the accomplishments of, like, the Sumerians? Like, what are you talking about? Like, are you diminishing the accomplishments of, of, of mathematics that were, you know, that were happening in the Fertile Crescent? Like, these people are just, I don't know... I don't know where they went to school, but I I hope some of them get a refund.
2: Do you run your own business? If you do, then you know that HR issues can kill you. Such a headache, right? It's just an area you know you have to deal with, but you don't really want to. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations. uh, And HR manager salaries aren't cheap either. An average of 70,000 bucks a year. That's where Bambi comes in. B-A-M-B-E-E. This company was created specifically to help small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. How about that? Less than hundred bucks a month. That's much better than 70,000 a year. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or via real-time chat. From onboarding, I guess that's the fancy way of saying hiring, to terminations, that we understand, they'll customize your policies to fit your business, and they'll help you manage your employees day-to-day, all again, for $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, you can cancel any time. How about that? You could cancel the HR manager who you've been using to cancel all the other people. <laughs> But hopefully you won't have to. You know you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. So let Bambi help and get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash MK right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash MK, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash MK. Check it out. Now, before we get back to Tim Dillon, uh, I want to bring you a, a feature of the show we call Sound Up. This is where we bring you some sound that we feel you must hear. Today, our old friend, Governor Andrew Cuomo, is the star of Sound Up. We learned this week in the New York Times that nine top New York State health officials have quit working for this guy in recent weeks. Why? Well, likely because of comments like this, which he made on Friday. Now, take a listen. You may have heard the very short comment at the beginning of this soundbite we're going to play for you. It got some media play, but very little attention was paid to the full comment, which is about as smug and gross as, well, just about any of other of Andrew Cuomo's previous comments.
1: Listen. When I say experts in air quotes, uh, it sounds like I'm saying I don't really trust the experts because I don't, because I don't. You want to talk about making mistakes How did COVID come here for three months and nobody knew? How did COVID leave China, go to Europe, and come here? And all these federal watchdogs, nobody knew it. How did you let New York sit here for three months receiving passengers from Europe who had the virus and nobody knew? How did you tell us that to spread the disease you had to be symptomatic, which meant the sneezing, the coughing, that's how it spread. Only to do a total 180 degrees later and say, oh by the way, you can be asymptomatic and spread it. What? That's all the difference in the world. It got into nursing homes because it was here before anyone knew. It was brought in by staff, it was brought in by visitors. Once it was here, they said it was spread by symptomatic people, that was untrue. It was also spread by asymptomatic people. Uh, But then to play politics with it the way they did, that was mean, that was mean. When the Trump administration was trying to divert blame, so they said, well, the state, uh, the states, not just New York, by the way, they blamed all the Democratic states for the deaths in nursing homes. The politics wasn't just here in New York, it was all the Democratic governors. It was New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, blame all the Democratic governors for the deaths in nursing homes. No, that was mean, because if you lost someone in a nursing home, then it put a thought in your head. Well, maybe it didn't have to be. Maybe my father died unnecessarily. And that was just cruel to do. OMG.
2: Is this guy effing out to lunch? Are you freaking kidding me? He he's got the nerve to try to speak on behalf of the families who lost people in nursing homes in New York State. I mean, I almost want to call up Janice Dean right now and get her to participate in this. You know what she'd be thinking, what she'd be saying. She's coming back on soon, by the way. It was mean to play politics with it. It was mean to blame the nursing home deaths on, quote, Democratic governors. No, you, you, Governor Cuomo, you are to blame You did sign an order requiring all the nursing homes in New York State to take COVID-positive patients in, even though the risks were highlighted for you and there were groups jumping up and down saying, are you insane? That's where the most vulnerable people are. It's not like they have tons and tons of room here in New York City. They're going to be stacked on top of each other, breathing all over one another, and it's the most vulnerable population. And he said, screw you, take them. And guess what? The early numbers were that six thousand plus people died in the nursing homes as a result. Janice Dean, my pal and Fox News meteorologist who lost both of her in-laws in New York nursing homes as a result of this order, was jumping up and down for months saying it's more than six thousand. He didn't count all the patients who got transferred out of the nursing homes and sent to hospitals where they died. He's eliminated those from his numbers. And you know what his office said? She's not an expert in anything but the weather. She's not an expert. Oh, so, my God, it's so infuriating. I want to punch his smug mouth. And guess what? She was proven correct. Uh, there was an attorney general report just last week confirming Janice was right. He way undercounted the deaths in the nursing homes. Why? To make himself look better. And now he's got the nerve to come out and play the victim? It's mean for anyone to say That he's responsible? And don't try to lump yourself in with all the Democratic governors. You did it. You, Mr. New York Tough. So take responsibility and stop acting like a baby. Because I don't. Because I don't. (laughs) You don't believe the experts. You should have believed the people who are warning you about this one. This one you should have paid attention to, sir. There's now a push to get Janice to run for governor. Oh, my God. It would be so amazing. It needs to happen. I've been ending every tweet about this with hashtag run Janice run. I mean, can you imagine him trying to take her on? She's the most sympathetic, kind, smart, funny, beloved figure. And he's exactly the opposite of all those things. Okay, I'm really in a tear now. (laughs) But this guy is who he always was. He's a bully. He's self-pitying and self-aggrandizing at the same time. He's dishonest. And he's got blood on his hands. All it would have taken early on was a simple apology and ownership of a massive mistake he made, but he refuses to this day, to this day. How would they know? It got into the homes before anyone knew. Oh, no, they knew. You, you were the one who said, put it in the homes. Take the people who have COVID positive tests and put them in the nursing homes. We have it all figured out, sir. Don't play dumb and don't play the victim. Okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is our sunny feature we call Sound Up. Back to Tim Dillon. I was at that royal wedding covering it, not as a guest. Right. And um, you could see the writing on the wall, right? They had all these guests there. They had George Clooney.
0: They had Oprah
2: they had all these people who you knew. They didn't know these people, right? They didn't know them. They, they, they got connected to them because of their celebrity.
0: It's also like a statement because she's like, is she like half black or something? Is that, that's the whole game, right? Is that she's like diversity? Mm-hmm. Like, is that the whole thing? Well, good. I mean, good for her, but it's also like, you know, she's just an attractive actress. That's all I see. I'm like, oh, you're marrying an attractive actress. Good for you. That's, you're a prince. You're marrying an attractive actress. If you want to really do something, marry me. Like, you know, like you're just (laughs) marrying some hot, uh, who can't, like, that's a, that's a seismic event that he married a hot actress. What are we doing? Like, again, it's like, it's a disease, like it's people that I look at who are like intelligent in every other capacity, lose their mind when they go like, this is a really big day uh, because he's marrying uh, a a woman who's not white. And I'm like, is it a big, I doesn't, I don't. That's great. I don't care who he marries. I mean, it's like, I think it's great. I don't. I think people of different races should get married. <laughs> like, of course,
2: it's it's a we, strange and, and have been for, for right 15 and it has years. been forever.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's a weird. Like to me, it's like odd. It's I I I don't know. It's you know. I'm thirty six. I'm like getting to the point now where I'm like, you know, in ten years, I don't think I'll understand anything. That's why I'm like make the money now because in ten years, I'm gonna be like. Hey, man. And someone's going to go, yeah, no good. Don't say, hey, right. man. Oh, totally. Like, I, it, yeah, it's it's common.
2: Well, that's like, you know, what we were talking about in San Francisco that like they've lost their ever loving minds, but they tend to be scarily a harbinger of things to come. Right. They've just got rid of the schools with the names yes. George Washington, Abe Lincoln. Even Diane Feinstein had to go right while their schools are closed. This is what they're prioritizing. How about yeah. getting the kids back in school? No, it's about getting rid of acronyms. That that they they think acronyms are now a symbol of white supremacy. So they have to get rid of them.
0: Gay people don't over a certain age don't understand any of this. It's like truly they don't get it. So what's very interesting about the trans movement is how political it is because there's clearly like people that have gender dysphoria, people that are trans, men that feel like they're women, women that feel like they're men and they, 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 they correct that and that's a great modern scientific thing they're able to do. But then there's also this just large movement of people who are like, well, I'm a queer or this or that and it's all about politics. I mean, it's just like, it has nothing to do with who they love or want to be in a relationship with or, or, or even sexually where they're at. It, it's really just this political movement where they're like well gender doesn't exist and, and, and biology is, is a creation of the white male patriarchy and uh, and also communism's a good idea and it, mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute, it, this comes with a lot this't doesn't, this doesn't seem to be solely about your gender expression. there's a lot in this bag here and so, it's, to me, I talk to other gay people that are like completely confused, especially older gay men. They have no idea. And I grew up gay people being very funny, very mean, very acerbic, said whatever they wanted. I mean, drag queens were hilarious. We now have politically correct drag queens. This is how insane we are. What there does used to that be drag like? shows. It's absurd to get out and start talking about health care and like, you know, it. like, it's absurd. Like, Drag queens used to do these shows in New York City that Wall Street guys used to go to because drag queens were hilarious. It was a six foot, six foot three guy in dressed like a woman who would be smoking a cigarette on stage and say whatever uh, she wanted to, like whatever. And people would like be like, "Oh my God, your your head was in your hands." He would point out members of the audience and destroy them, and and it was just very funny. And the and the, and the reality was, listen, you can't hurt me. These are just words. I'm a six foot three drag queen. I take the subway home, and if you if you start a fight with me, you're gonna get a fight because these were tough people. They're very very tough, and the whole idea here was that words are cheap. They're funny. Life is short. It doesn't matter. It was a generation that it just got done with AIDS, and 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 now it's like we're we're injecting political correctness and sensitivity into into even that. Where it's like you have these these crazy characters that are supposed to be by their nature over the top they're not depicting women they're depicting this crazy idea of drag that's supposed to be really funny and inappropriate and and not mainstream and and outside of the lines by its very nature and the most the funnest and coolest thing about it is that it's that and we're making it this very boring Mainstream, like drag queen <laughs> soccer mom thing, where like they're supposed to be nice and they're supposed to be understanding and sensitive. And I'm just like, how boring do we want planet Earth to be? That's my only question. How boring do we want it to be? And I, I mean, that's that's my whole thing. I'm like, this is crazy. Do you think that we were getting to the place like I had when Barry
2: Weiss was on the show, we were talking about ant, the rise in anti Semitism right now, and she was explaining right. to me why Jewish people, and I quote, don't rank. Like in the field of yeah. perceived victims, right? In sort of the wokester's field of perceived right. victims, Jewish people don't rank, notwithstanding that whole Holocaust thing and and lifetime right. of antisemitism. But okay, fine. That's that's why. and And I kind of feel like the same thing is happening to gays and lesbians. Like it's no longer yeah. exciting. They no longer rank. They have enough power no. now that they've been booted out of the Uh, sort of LGBTQ. It's really just about the TQ crowd now. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it's also just about what, you know, once you have a group of people who've, you know, gone through something and they've attained some level of respect and success, they are no longer going to be an ally of your radical batshit crazy ideas. Right. So you have to find people that are marginalized currently that have resentment for that and those are the people you are able you're going to be able to uh mold into radicals because people kind of lose that radical they grow up they get over it they say yeah you know, I'm, I'm, I found a stable relationship or I found acceptance and love in a community or I found whatever, and they're not, you know, you can't go to a gay man or woman who owns a home and has a job and is doing well and get them to believe a lot of the insanity that you can get a 17-year-old to believe who's, you know, is just basically still figuring out who they are, what the world is, So a lot of these nefarious forces, are they know that. So they are preying on people that may have issues psychologically. They may have trouble in their life, you know, for whatever reason. And those are the people who they're going to convince, yes, it's a great idea if we get rid of the police and cut everybody's mic, not let everyone talk, deplatform everyone in mass, burn the books. Uh, Take everyone's money. These are all great ideas. And when you're 17 years old and you have some issue with your sexuality or gender, that's probably, you're like, yeah, fuck it. Burn it all down. I don't want any part of that. You can't come to me and say that. You can't come to me and say, we're going to destroy every part of society and replace it with this. I'm going to go, no, 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 no. I don't think that's a good idea because I'm not an idiot. So they got to find people that are in their larval stage of being When I was 17, I was kind of an idiot. So I was like, you could come to me and go, how about this? How about we steal all your parents' money, take their, you know, and I might go, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. when you grow up, you start going, oh yeah, we can't do that. It's actually not going to work. Whatever's coming down the pike is worse. You people terrify me more than homophobes ever have. Uh, and uh yeah, no good so so that's what it is. It's finding people that are really amenable to the message. It's like, how do we get this message in the heads of people that are most gay guys are having fun, they don't really care. They go out, they drink they they hook up, they have fun. this is not they're not they don't they're not sitting there reading Karl mark. I mean, it's like it's this weird, sexless generation of asexual weirdos that just are you know rehashing these genocidal ideologies and saying that these are a good idea now? And it's like you just need to go to Chili's and go to two for one margarita night and like meet another human being. <laughs> well, I as think you that's know, really what it is. It's kind of the cure all.
2: It's everywhere, and it's not. It's not just you know the trans community, as you of know, course. sort of with this over of the course. top stuff. And I know you've been critical of the hypocrisy when it comes to the riots, you know, in in support of right. BLM, if that's what right. they were. Those are those are those are good riots, but the the riot on the yes. Capitol that's a bad riot. Yeah, and these are the I riots, wanted to get these your are the reaction because I like yeah. I, well, because I just saw it, um, over the past couple of days that maybe you saw this, but some Norwegian guy made the nomination, and Black Lives Matter uh, has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. This, this, Interesting. This, yeah, this is a movement that burned down police stations. Yeah, occupied one, tried to burn cops alive. Uh, some of the protesters did in in. Um, Seattle, the Antifa group that had infiltrated them. I mean, uh, h- hundreds of people injured, 700 cops,
1: people
2: Crazy. killed. Like the thought that peace, like peace prize? Yeah.
0: Well, I talked about this on Rogan and me and Rogan have discussed this a lot. The biggest change, and I'm again, I'm 36, I haven't been around forever, but the biggest change in my life has been uh, watching people from the establishment, from the media, from academia, Uh, excuse and promote violence. Say that this is okay, that this is appropriate. This is a great way to get your point across, that you're allowed to riot and burn people's businesses and destroy their property and attack innocent people. That, I mean, you want to talk about a cultural shift. That was really not really like something that when I was growing up, you know, when people were violent, for the most part, it was condemned. It might have been, people might have said it was okay in some fringe part of the, you know, but but it was pretty much roundly condemned by people that should and did at that time know better. Now, watching that has been absurd to me. Watching people excuse Antifa, BLM. Uh, on the other side, people that say, well, the Capitol riot was cool. And then uh, what well, the Proud Boys do is whatever. To me, I, I'm like, we need to just establish something where it's like people beating each other in the streets, attacking cops, Using And that's the thing, Rogan's a real fighter, and Rogan understands violence, right? Rogan Mm -hmm. actually understands violence. He's a fighter. The guy's a black belt. He he, he commentates on fighting. It's what he's an expert in. So when he sees these people that are LARPing, you know, live-action role-playing, and they're going out and pretending to be fighters, they can't fight, they're all beating each other up with hockey sticks. It's kind of embarrassing. They're like theater kids who are trying to fight or whatever's going on, you know, a guy like that looks at that and goes, "You don't understand that you're opening the gates of hell when you just when you use violence. Violence is becomes the language, and that means you're going to get violence back, and then it just becomes an endless cycle of violence. Why nobody in the media or people that are writing articles in at the Atlantic and places like that, why nobody can have that position, stuns me. Like why no one can just go, should we be opening the door?" Should we be legitimizing violence like this? Should we be saying this is an, a, a, an appropriate way to express a political idea? To me, that's the biggest shift. If you would said to me, like, what's the biggest shift? It's like the idea that you could go burn down someone's business, and then someone will write an article defending it in the New York Times. Yeah. That's the biggest cultural shift, and it's scary. Yeah, it was, um,
2: oh, God, the CEO of Parlour came on the program, and shortly before he he was on, he had interviewed with Kara Swisher, who is, you know, an established progressive and she writes for the New oh, York I'm Times aware. and she's got a, yeah. yeah. I mean, I like her. I actually have a friendship with her cause I can, be she's an interesting
0: her. person. I don't know much she's, about her. I heard oh, her and she's Sam super Harris. Spicy. Her and she's like, she's yeah. a kick
2: ass person. Like I get, I did I interviewed yeah. her at NBC and this is how I first met her. And, and uh, I was saying, you know, there are a lot of women out there who are suffering from, you know, a lecherous boss or whatever. And they just don't feel like right. they can speak up cause they don't want to lose their job. I'm like, you know, and, and and on the other side, I said, there's, there's a lot of men out there who still feel like they can get away with this crap with impunity. And what's your message? Right. And she was like, um, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you off. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. her. So she's strong. Yeah, she's I she's We disagree on most things political, but yeah. I like her anyway. But she was giving the CEO of Parlor a hard time because he said that there had been a piece in the New York Times defending looting. She said, absolutely not. No, they didn't. No, they, the New York, no. And there was, there 100% was a piece in the New York Times talking about defending looting and you're right it opens up a very slippery slope that then we saw people walk through and i don't know whether we would have had the capitol hill riot if we hadn't had the summer of blm riots um but knows, it's very yeah. difficult for us to take the media seriously when they express outrage uh especially i i understand a police officer died uh and, and a civilian died and other people suffered related deaths at the capitol hill riot but you know the numbers on the blm protests were awful i mean i just i i was looking at it the other day after that Peace Prize nomination, it was the New York Post put the number at more than 700 cops injured. Um, Forbes said in just the first two weeks of June, 19 were killed, mostly black. Could be higher than that. Hundreds of millions, maybe over a billion in property damage. So it's like, I- I'm not comparing them. I'm just saying, t- to say they have nothing to do with each other,
0: I think is too close minded too. Oh, of course. They have they have everything to do with each other. And then, you know, when AOC goes, I felt like I was going to die. It's like, okay, but you excuse and promote the activities of people that you tell them to go into restaurants and threaten Congress people. You tell them to threaten senators they disagree with. You don't mind when people show up outside of Tucker Carlson's house. You don't mind when people show up outside of the houses in Seattle and Portland. You're not vocal about that. You don't mind when uh, people are harassed at their homes in front of their children. So I don't take people like her seriously. And uh, again, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate Unless this changes, and I don't see it's changing. I mean, we're, we're living in the end here. I mean, we're living in, like, this is the end of reason. This is the end of all that. And the next step is just violence. The next step is, like, unfortunately, a societal breakdown, which would be probably somewhat swift, where, like, you just have marauding groups of people that have problems with each other that want to fight it out, and cops are going to be like, the hell with this, and I totally understand that. They're going to be like, I'm not giving my life. To get involved in this so if people keep propping up this idea that the right kind of violence is acceptable i can't think of a worse idea for the future of this country than hey the right type of violence is good i couldn't think of a worse idea like yeah the right and we'll let you make that decision the right just violence is good yeah
2: this is one of the problems i have with critical race theory, which is that that basically is the right type of racism is good. Correct. And it it leads to a similar breakdown in society. I mean, if you think forcing all people of all races into these mandated sessions where they're told they're awful and they're supreme, they're supremacists or so they believe just based on their pigmentation and that they have to lament and repent and for sins of the father, um, do you think that's going to make them feel good? toward people of other races right. or not good, no. right? Like, let's be, let's be real. It's so Crazy. divisive. It's going to lead to exactly the opposite result of the one that they want. But, you know, people got their blinders on. They don't want to see that piece of the story.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's really the institutions. Nobody wants this, right? Nobody really wants this. It is truly academia. It's the media. It's now invading the courts. Uh, but people on the street, People that you talk to, people in their day to day lives have no use for this. they truly don't. their concerns are largely economic, they want money, they want jobs, they want their kids to have a good life, and this identity this rabid identity politics is and and the, the people like Bernie Sanders who were successful you know not using that and even though he you know lost eventually because I think that started to creep into his campaign more than it should have. But he was all about, like, class and working people or whatever. And then the minute that, you know, he went on Rogan and then everyone turned on him and they were like, he's an anti-trans guy, he's it's racist, you know, and you're like, wait, what? Um, mm-hmm. So it's regular working people, for the most part, I don't think have a ton to gain from the adoption of critical race theory. A lot of this is about, I believe, people creating a hierarchy that they can kind of um, move up in, whether it's, uh, you know, at a magazine, uh, at a website, uh, you know, in in Hollywood, whatever they do, they want to just be agreeable and they want to be able to kind of push the fashionable ideas of the day and critical race theory is one of them. But again, this is really for upper middle class or upper class professionals who are trying to make lots of money. So what it really doesn't benefit at all is the people they purport to care about, which is working people that are working wage jobs. This doesn't help them get health care. It doesn't help them eventually, you know, be in a position to own a home or anything. This is just this weird way for someone to guilt other people into bettering their career.
2: What? Um, let me ask you about Rogan. Because you yeah. went on there with Alex Jones of all people, with whom I have some experience. I did um, and so you went on there with him. And let me just start with what happened after, because there was some blowback. Yes. I would submit to the jury that he did not receive anywhere near the blowback for having Alex Jones on as I did for doing an interview no, piece with correct. him. But, um, correct, but okay. So you show up there. How did that happen? Um, oh wait, no. Let me let me start. Well, you're a end. woman.
0: I mean listen you're a woman talking so automatically there's blow but you know what i mean it's like yeah i mean you fine. do get I mean, you do get more it is what it is you know
2: i honestly tim i've said this before but i really mean it all, all the blowback in the world is just fine by me every time they every time they do that to me i get stronger yeah, that's just right. the truth right. if you can look at it that way and actually try to live it that way it's it's fuel it's fuel for your right. muscles it's true. um but i saw all that blowback and i thought okay so, what is happening with Joe Rogan at Spotify, and can this relationship possibly last? Right, that how can he last at at Spotify by putting on folks like like Alex Jones and then thumbing the middle finger? All of which I loved uh, at the people who objected. Yeah. But what do you think? Can it last?
0: I mean, well, what is it? It's a three year contract, I think. I mean, I'm sure to last with the contract. I mean, they paid him the money, right? I mean, they'll have meetings there. They'll, they'll talk about it. People will be upset. Employees will be upset. They'll have tummy aches. They'll have, they'll need to have lie downs. They'll need to take naps. You know, in kindergarten, we took naps. We They put the mats out and we'd take a nap and then we'd go out and play kickball. So we're going to have that, you know, people are going to have sad days. I'm very sad. And they're going to have, you know, they're going to need to express themselves and be heard. Uh, but at the end of the day, I believe that they're going to keep their jobs because Spotify can get new people in there pretty, you know, uh, uh, these young kids that are upset about this that can, you know, what are going to walk away from 150 grand a year? I mean, Spotify will get somebody else in there in a minute. So I think that, uh, that it's going to be, you know, a lot of huffing and puffing, but they're not going to blow the house down. I mean, I, th- I don't think they're going to walk away from Joe and obviously Joe will honor his commitment and, you know, uh, what's going on internally is 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 very different. I think than what's being reported. I think what's being reported is like there's a lot of internal strife and there's all these problems. But I think at the end of the day, it's like Spotify is a company. They have a lot of meetings about a lot of things. I'm sure there are people with concerns, but I don't. I don't see any evidence that they censored, uh, Joe or ever have. No, and they stood you know, by him. They stood by him, and I think that's what they're gonna have to do. I think the CEO of Spotify like lives in Sweden or something. He, like doesn't care.
2: He doesn't care. He <laughs> it's amazing. Like a if yeah. he can make it work, honestly, if he can make it work and, and like stand up to the, to the cancel culture bullies there, it's a great model. And in the yeah. same way Joe Rogan's been on a lot of fronts, um, but it's a great model for other, for other people, for other employers in particular. Like You can push right. back against the woke bullies and you're the one paying them. You're the one with the, beat, with the deep pocket. If you would just Correct. take a stand, you, we could seize back control of reasonable conversation.
0: Right. That's a, and we hope that happens.
2: So what? What? How did you get to know Alex Jones? How did that relationship come about?
0: Well, Alex, interesting guy. Because I'd listen to Alex for a very long time since I was like probably 13 or 14 years old. I would put Alex on. He was on the radio, and uh, you know, he was Alex Jones. He was, he was very entertaining. He was interesting. He was crazy. He was wild. I mean, he was—he's everything that he is now. And it's just he's become more of a, a, a figure now. He wasn't really a figure then. But, I mean, this was his, this guy with a bullhorn that was showing up at, like, uh, you know, doing 9-11 stuff. He was, you know, he was an enemy of the Bush administration. He, he was not loved by Republicans. And then, then he was a critic of Obama. And then he infiltrated the Bohemian Grove where, they, you know, they have this, you know, elite weekend of all these big media guys or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. government people. They all hang out and run around. So he had done all these things. And he was always just kind of the thorn in the side of the establishment. And he was kind of funny kind of this weird grassroots Austin, Texas populace that was interesting, right? I mean, he was just a guy that was interesting to kind of, I'm a guy that I stay up late, you know, me and other comics would smoke cigarettes and, you know, two o'clock in the morning, what are you going to watch? You watch Alex Jones, you watch somebody who is truly um, outside of, and and then when Trump brought him in the fold and they started to... um, he started to become more of a political figure. Really, there was a huge target on him. Um, and obviously, the Sandy Hook stuff, which again, and this is not even a... I always try, It's I know it sounds like I'm trying to like minimize my... I didn't listen to him during that period, so like, I don't know how much he brought that up. He said that. He did it a few times. He probably did it a lot more than that. And I, I know that when you are... A, if, you, if you host a show about conspiracies and you look in every news story and you don't believe anything... Some of your crazy fans are gonna do horrible things and what they did was horrible. And I'm I'm not defending what he did. I'm certainly not defending what they did. Um, but he's an he's a fascinating person. It's like the only I don't know if you could have that job anywhere else other than America to be like a full time conspiracy theorist. And I mean the first time I met him was I was in Austin doing Cap City, which was a comedy club there. I was headlining that and I called Joe and I said I was very curious. You know, I'd never, you know, I was just curious about all these things. And um, I was with my producer and I said, let's go do Alex Jones' show. So we did a show and it was, you know, again, he's a a force of nature, very talented broadcaster, complex dude. There's demons there. There's problems there. I mean, you know, as you can tell, you get it. Um, and then Joe was like, Hey, why don't you do his podcast with me? And I was like, Oh boy. I remember talking to Joe, I was like, This is gonna be really something and he goes, Yeah, you'll be great, Mom. You'll be funny, Mom. You know, he talks very quick and like, you know, he's like, Hey mom, it's gonna be good, Mom. So I was like, Okay. <laughs> and I I did it. It was this massive thing and I, I did did a good job, I think, being funny on it and trying to like direct Alex or whatever. But you know, wherever I am in life years from now, I will be able to tell people during two thousand 19, 2020, during one of the craziest periods in this country's history. And by the way, I hope so. I hope 10 years from now it's like this wasn't like the the calm. But I hope I'm able to say that, like, yeah, I was very curious. And, like, there was a media operation, you know, in in the Valley of California, Joe Rogan, that I was on, you know, seven times. And I was on this uh, other thing that this guy Alex Jones was doing who became, like, the guy and the the public enemy number one and i I saw his lair. you know I went down there to that studio and I, like talked to them it, It's all endlessly fascinating watching the world change and watching it change and watching the evolution of media is very interesting to me so th- i I want to get up close and personal I want to see these people understand them, try to figure out what's going on. I think as a comedian and as somebody who does kind of dark comedy or comedy that you know you know is 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 cognizant of what's going on i I do like to get you know, in these spaces and, and, and see these people. It doesn't mean I agree with Alex Jones and, you know, about things, some of the things he's been right about, some of them he hasn't been, but it's very interesting sitting in that little, you know, industrial park in Austin and, you know, watching this little, you know, this, this, it's not little, it's a pretty sizable operation. You you were probably down there. I don't know where you interviewed him, but like watching, yeah, you've been there and you're seeing how much trouble you can get in with a few cameras. Uh, He's really wild.
2: I got a lot of feelings about Alex Jones. Um, I he's the one person who I really get hung up on when it comes to deplatforming. I'm really, I can I can argue to the cows come home about the importance of free speech. And I've said before I'm 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 a near absolutist when it comes to the First Amendment free speech principles. Um, I've defended a lot of crazies, a lot of crazies in their right to say crazy stuff because this is America. But I will say I I'm. It's, it's maybe ironic because some of the Newtown families were upset with me for interviewing him. Um, for the record, I've pointed this out because NBC wouldn't say it about me openly at the time, but there were 26 families, 26 Newtown families, six objected and all the others either openly supported me or had no objection to my interviewing him. OK, so the the six who objected to my interviewing him, even though they you know, this had never been a thing prior when CNN interviewed him or The New York Times interviewed him or many other people. Um, I, you know, I I knew that the right thing was to do the interview, even though these are the most sympathetic people in the world, because he his presence and his sort of interference in business and lives had gone well beyond the Newtown families. And he had been extremely disruptive and and destructive for a lot of groups. And it caused a lot of trouble, yeah. a lot of danger. Um. And so I really thought it was time to shine a light on the guy. And and now I'm actually good friends with one of the Newtown dads. His name is Neil Heslin, and he is a beautiful man. Beautiful man. And that guy, and he's a he's a Republican. He's, you know, he's not anti-speech, but Neil has said, like, on behalf of the other families too, like, this guy, he he needs like what he's doing is causing real. Harm. All the messages put yeah. out about this being a false flag and it wasn't true and it, Sandy Hook didn't happen and, you know, he held his dead son. You know, it's like, I just can't. That's where my it's, free listen, speech absolutism it's, it's, stops. It's very
0: sticky. It's very sticky. And I completely understand the rage at Alex Jones. I understand the anger at Alex Jones. I completely understand the danger of a guy like Alex Jones to say that he's not dangerous is absolutely, um, it would be minimizing it, right? That there's a danger in somebody being able to say whatever they want. The flip side of that is that there may be a greater danger allowing these tech platforms to unilaterally, without any process, without giving someone the ability to defend themselves, without any type of hearing, without any evidence presented, uh, to eliminate people's ability to speak, to earn money, to unperson them, to act in a coordinated way, where you have six or seven of these platforms doing this essentially overnight at once, that also to me is dangerous. Now, I know, I know. what is the greater right. danger? That's a listen, this is a debate. This is a question. It's not, I'm, you know, when I read those Andy Hook things, I feel horrible. I got flack from some of my friends, not many of them, but there's a few of my friends that are like, you're better than that. You shouldn't have done his show. I can't, you know, they, they, and these are good friends of mine. They weren't like, you know, the hell with you, but they were like, I'm disappointed. I don't know why you're choosing to sit down with somebody like this. Um, I'm like, listen, man, people, and this is, this is, again, this is not, nobody wants to hear this, right? Nobody wants to hear um, that. People should not be necessarily defined by their biggest mistake. Now, obviously, when someone makes a horrible mistake and it affects the lives of other people, it does define them, whether they like it or not. That will define Alex Jones forever. Um, that is, Alex Jones has had a career for 30 years. He's said a lot of things. He said Jeffrey Epstein was bringing people to an island to have sex with them that were underage, and he was right about that. OK, mm-hmm. he was saying that years before anyone else said it, he was saying things um, about NAFTA and the WTO and, and, and saying that, you know, a lot of these groups are, are are going to be, you know, operating, you know, outside of the public view and making huge decisions. And there's going to be massive changes to the social and global structures and economic policy. And I mean, he was, you know, but yes, that is an indefensible part of whatever his legacy is going to be. And I don't think it should be defended. I don't. I think it should just be a. He did the wrong thing. He made the wrong call. And then his fans, whom many of them are mentally unhinged people, that's right. the other problem, right? That is. The so you have answer, his Bob fan? Me. That is the other problem. They're mentally unhinged people. They did things that they should just go to jail forever for, in my opinion. I mean, just like lock, throw away the key. It's like, yeah, you're harassing a family whose children died. You you have as Bob Grant, who I used to listen to on W. Uh, WABC, when I was a child, used to say you've served notice on society. Like you have basically, you have established who you are as a person if you're willing to do that. I think Alex regrets that. I think towards the end of the episode with Rogan, I think it eats him up. I think it's why he's had issues with drinking and other substances. Mm -hmm. I think like I think there's a lot of problems there. And I I just think I've never, in my wildest imagination, would ever even defend anything, nor would anyone. My only thing is that I've always believed that if we give this power to tech, it doesn't stop with Alex Jones. It's not going to stop. It will continue. It will become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it will just spread like, like anything, just like violence. Yeah. I mean, I, but it is a tough
2: one. In talking, in talking to the Newtown families after that whole thing, some of them, um, I was in favor of of his deplatforming. I just was. I saw firsthand that the pain, his hitting this subject, claiming it was false that they made up the death of their children over and over and over. He did it repeatedly. What it caused in their lives, you know, they they some of some of them have to go in disguise because they get harassed nonstop. They've had death threats. One guy went to jail. It's just gotten so out of hand. And and he, even in my interview with Alex Jones, he he didn't fully own it he kept waffling back and forth and well but there was evidence it was like crazy stuff and i did e- even then i was a first amendment near absolutist and i and i right. but I still thought this guy should go and i i noticed at the time a lot of conservatives saying this is slippery slope because you know they always make bad policy in response to like the worst one you know the worst right. one tugs at your heartstrings right. and you say okay let's change the policy and then that comes back to haunt people who aren't anywhere near as controversial and you know lo and behold that's that's been true. So I don't have an answer. I I think it's sad we can't establish like universal symbol or uh, universal right. lines that we can all say, yes, clearly that needs to not be there. Without completely bastardizing the principle and, and you know, wind up saying like, I would have no felt better tweet.
0: Yeah, I would have felt better if there was some way that Alice could defend himself and then he was removed. And then it was like, OK, he was removed. If he had a chance to say, here's what happened and then they went, No, actually here's what happened. And there was some process. I would just feel better about it if there was a process. And it wasn't just a unilateral decision. Well, you know, at uh, that
2: point it would yeah. have been a it would have been window dressing anyway. They they weren't Correct. interested in any defense yeah. he had. Correct. You know, his
0: goose was, was And I think cruxed. it's probably pretty defense like that that's where the crux of it is it's like it's kind of indefensible. So I don't know what his defense would oh, have been. Is- no, right. So at the end of the day, it's like it, it's as good a reason as any to to not be on social media. Right. So but it, it's just I'm a little uncomfortable with like not There's no process. No. You know, you know, you know,
2: but it's a tough, tough. one. And he definitely he is suffering from some, I think, mental issues. There's no question. And, um, yeah. you know, that's a piece of this. And I, I actually if you don't. If you don't mind me asking, I noticed that you have some mental illness in your own family.
0: Absolutely.
2: And um, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk about it because I do think too many people are afraid to talk about mental illness. My mother
0: is uh, is schizophrenic. She was diagnosed schizophrenic probably when I was in my late teens. Um, She'd always been kind of an eccentric, fun person behavior, a little bit erratic, but nothing to you know, collecting beanie babies and McDonald's toys and Hess trucks and, you know, keeping odd hours and worked very hard. But we got up at four or five a.m. because she was, you know, ran a swim program, that started very early in the morning and like was, you know, kind of this person that was very fun. But, you know, there were there were real issues there. And she, you know, was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, which means that she's got, you know, a, a few mental illnesses happening. There's there's synapses firing that are not really hitting the other side. Uh, And again, she's, you know, she's a person where we talk a lot about physical illness in this country. We don't talk a lot about mental illness, especially coming from an Irish Catholic family. Most people brush those things under the rug. They're not Mm -hmm. spoken about. But um, it's given me an appreciation for people that have struggles with mental illness. And it's also given me kind of a contempt for what I consider the Instagram mental illness where it's like people that are using terms like depression and anxiety, but not actually understanding what they mean. And they diag They diagnose themselves off like a meme and on Instagram, they don't really, they don't have any clinical diagnosis and they're not really, you know, and it's given me a little contempt for that because I think there's a fetishization of that. That's actually pretty political where people are like, if you disagree with me, I'm triggered and I have to go lock myself in a room. And I'm like, that's not what this is. <laughs> like my mm-hmm. ma- my mother has real mental illness. Like she wasn't afraid of like a, a, a discussion. This is like legit mental illness. So when everybody, when anybody co-ops mental illness and tries to use it as a way to get what they want or avoid uncomfortable conversations, I'm like, guys, that's really not what it is.
2: Or get Knowing attention. What it is, so many people today yeah, are declaring to themselves, yeah. right, to be suffering from forty different illnesses,
0: and it's like, Correct.
2: You know what? You're fine. Like you're fine. You're, yeah. They just. I talked about this with Piers Morgan, and he had some great examples. But it's like, that's the other craze in today's day and age: just to declare yourself, like, suffering from this phobia or that disease or this disorder or whatever. Because, I mean, I honestly, I think it's because they've been told it's not cool to be like a normal kid. You got to find something.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I mean, my my friend who was not really succeeding at comedy and now is actually doing a lot better, sat down to lunch with his father one day and he goes, you know, I think I'm depressed. And his father says, you don't have a job. You don't have any money. You don't have a woman. You should be depressed. So (laughs) at the end of the day, there's some there's some, uh, you know, sometimes situational depression is situational. And you you got to put yourself in another situation. And it's like. But my mother legit it does suffer. I do visit her, I talk to her, she's happy that I'm doing well in my career. She lives in an institution. You know, it's legit mental illness. It's not like one man show mental illness or I get profiled in Rolling Stone mental. It's legit, she has issues. So I do have an appreciation for those struggles. And I, I do think a lot of people in comedy are crazy. I think a lot of the people I know, you know, are struggling with all kinds of things. And I think that's what makes a lot of them talented and it's a double edged sword. A lot of the greatest artists throughout history have been people that have had these struggles and have been very sensitive people and have suffered. And like that's, you know, part of, you know, people contain multitudes and a lot of the most talented people that talent, you know, you know, and when you, when you have people that are, you know, you know, you look at a lot of the comedy that's coming out now or a lot of the music or whatever it is. And you go, yeah, this is, is this what healthy people make? Because if so, let's Mm -hmm. go back to crazies because this is no good.
2: Do you worry at all? I mean, do you worry for yourself given the genetic well, connection? Well, I've asked
0: doctors, you know, I've asked doctors, they said that if I, if I was going to have like a problem like that, it would have probably made itself known in the latter part of my twenties or, you know, you know, I'm 36 now. I don't know that I'm super worried about that, but like, you know, I don't drink, I'm sober. I've been sober 10 years, or to a little over 10 years, 11 or 12 years. So I don't really do any drugs. I don't smoke pot. And I know that, you know, listen, everyone loves weed, but, like, weed can exacerbate those things. I mean, nobody wants to admit that, but that is clinical fact. Um, and I know that's not cool vices? to say. Oh, I mean, I have tons of vices, right? I mean, I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, you know, that's a vice, I think. I think of wanting people to look at you and laugh at you and validate you as a human being is probably the big vice. Um but yeah, I mean food and you know, occasionally I'll put a cigarette in my mouth and like there's there are things that I it's very very hard to eat healthy and to exercise and to do the right things and, and and be honest all the time and a good person and caring and not think about yourself and not I mean that's the thing when you when you become a sober person you realize that a lot of your issues were not actually because of booze uh and drugs they were the result of You know, just being an imperfect person and the booze and the drugs were the medicine that actually kept those issues at bay. And so that when you sober up, you have all these things to deal with, your own self-concept, how you treat yourself, what you think about yourself, what you think about other people. And I'm in a public business where people can say whatever they want about me and and I respect that right and I just have to deal with it. I have to ignore it or not listen to it or use what I think is useful and move on. And you're in that position too. It's like you lose the right to, you know, to, to, you know, control what people think about you. People are going to say things that are completely untrue. They're going to say things that are somewhat true. They're going to say things that they don't have an understanding of. They're going to mischaracterize things you say and do. And you just have to go with it and go, Hey, that's cool. I know. I, I know, mean, Rogan but, is but incredibly But to do it totally
2: sober is impressive. Like, I have to say, it's tough, I've yeah. joked with my brother, I, I'll never become an alcoholic because it it's too important to me. <laughs> I won't, I'll never right. abuse it to the point where it becomes a problem. Right, because right. Because, you know, after that stressful day, if you, you know, you have that glass of wine or you have a martini, it's like, okay, I genuinely do feel better. And- It is a vice. It's a crutch for sure. And if if you ever do like the uh, dry January or, you know, in in my case with my husband, it's like the dry five days in a row, which is about about how long we'll go. You realize I'm I'm using it for sure. I use it to help me
0: get through feelings of stress. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that like people do use, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think it's like there are those people that for whatever reason are unable to have a productive relationship with it. And that is the problem. You know, George yeah. Carlin said it perfectly. When you first start using drugs and alcohol, there's a lot of fun and a little bit of pain. There's a lot of fun, a little bit of pain. The hangovers don't even bother you. You know, you're 17. I used to be able to drink all night and get up and go to work. And I was a lifeguard, I would go to work all day. Not a problem. And as you progress, it becomes more, more pain that offsets the fun. And the people that don't get off the train... By the end of it, when people are in the depths of an addiction, it's all pain and almost no fun. So it actually completely reverses. And that's the Carlin point about drugs, which is very fascinating, that it actually reverses itself completely from when you first start, where it's all fun, no pain, to then mid-ground, a lot of pain, a lot of fun, to the end stage, all pain, very little fun.
2: Yeah. Uh, I heard a saying uh, about alcohol, uh, wonderful
0: servant, terrible master. <laughs> great, great saying. Yeah, there's a great book called Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp, who ended up dying, but she was a writer. I think she was a journalist. I forget, can't, maybe she she wrote for the Boston Globe or something. She wrote this book called Drinking a Love Story, and it was about that she was in love with booze. She's like the uncork of the wine bottle, you know, the, the sultry, kind of seductive way that the wine would enter the glass. You know, she would just sit there and, you know, yeah. drink. And then it was this amazing way to understand it. It was an amazing way to understand it. And she articulated it beautifully as like that. This is the great love story of her life was booze and she needs to get away from it.
2: Mm. Mm, Sad. Sad. Uh, Well, I tip my hat to you for living in the comedy world without relying on vices because I know it too often that becomes a thing. I want to ask you before I let you go. um, Who are your favorite comedians? Who are your who would you say are your influences? Chelsea Handler, no,
0: uh, <laughs> Patrice O'Neill, I think was one of the greatest comedians that's ever lived. Um, uh, Greg Giraldo was amazing. Uh, people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin and Joan Rivers were absolutely amazing. People like Eddie Murphy and Chris Farley, uh, Mike Myers, and you know people like uh, Adam Sandler, um, you know created the comedic world in which I lived. Jim Carrey uh they created the world of which that's what I thought was funny. Will Farrell. Um so there were stand ups that were brilliant. And then, you know, there were people that in the sketch comedy world created the things that I found really funny. And, you know, those people to me were brilliant. Woody Allen's brilliant. Woody Allen, somebody that I grew up watching. Um and there, there's just a, a lot of very, very funny people, even, you know, on, on SNL, you had people like Gilda Radner and people like Jane Curtin and people, you know, yep. that were incredibly funny and again, helped form my ideas of what funny was. And, and the, those people later on became like people like Sherry O'Terry or Molly Shannon or Anna Gastar. Like it, so it, it was, yeah, really, really funny people. And then, you know, there's so many different comedic influences that are are out there, and so many different funny people that it's hard to really pinpoint. But that's the you know the world we all grow up in a world of funny, and I mean you know for my grandfather it was Jackie Gleason, and Jackie Gleason's a genius, and for me I can appreciate Jackie Gleason and go, this guy was amazing. But my grandfather grew up in that world of like Jackie Gleason and Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson, and it's like we go I grew up in a world of David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, and you know all of these yeah. different you know, people that have added something to what I consider funny.
2: I love all the names you just said. Most of those SNL characters, um, actors, whatever, comedians, I watched first time around back in the 70s when I would hang out at my Nana's house and, you know, she let me watch endless hours of television. After she went to bed, there was nothing on except for SNL, which was definitely inappropriate for me. And I didn't right. get much of the humor, but those are the people who were on, you know, back then in the Great. 70s and, and yeah. totally brilliant. And and the, and two two points, number one, not a single one of the ones you named are political. Like they all managed right. to poke fun at both sides, which is one yes. of the reasons why we love them, why why the whole country loved them. Jo- somebody like Johnny Carson, he he got it. He knew exactly how far to push it with both sides. Um, and number two, I, I I hope this is a compliment, but you remind me of Chris Farley. Um, yeah, well, I, you're, I always you're take as that funny as, a compliment. as he is. You are as funny. Well, as Well, I don't know
0: about that. He's you he's, are he's a he's a real force. We're very different types of comedy. We do different types of comedy, but he's a, you know one of the funniest people I think that's ever lived, I would say. And yep. uh, there's a few guys that are just really forces of nature where their talent comes from somewhere else. It's like from another planet, you know? And it's like you're in awe of them, whether it, you know, Robin Williams was probably one of those people. Chris Farley was one of those people. Eddie Murphy is one of those people where you look at them and you're just completely amazed by the level of talent they have and it's just not something that we can we can barely understand it so I mean listen it's a a very big compliment I don't think I'm worthy of it but you know all of those guys are you know tremendous Dana Carvey whoever Chris Rock I mean you look all these guys are tremendously funny and you just hope to be good enough that you have some small part of that world and that somebody growing up will, will appreciate what I've done or what I'm trying to do and like That's just the hope. You know, we're just trying to make people laugh here because life sucks. You know, life's hard.
2: (laughs) If you're looking to feel valued and validated, I hope you feel it right now. I'm feeling it towards you and I have a feeling my audience is I appreciate
0: it. You're the best, Megan. And thank you for having me. I'm a big fan and I hope that uh, you continue to speak because you're an important voice out there and uh, we really appreciate you doing what you're doing.
2: Oh, thanks, Tim. And wait, before I let you go, how can people find you and support you?
0: Tim J. Dillon, D-I-L-L-O-N, on Twitter and Instagram. The Tim Dillon Show is a podcast that is weekly. It's on YouTube. You can subscribe to The Tim Dillon Show on YouTube and find me on social media, Tim J. Dillon. And uh, on, follow me on Clubhouse if you have the invite.
2: Shut up, you. <laughs> You're out of here. <laughs> this hour was brought to you in part by The Zebra. Find out how much money you can save on car or home insurance by visiting thezebra.com slash Kelly now. And don't forget to tune into the show this Monday because we've got Casey Johnson. Now, Casey is a college professor. He's at Brooklyn College, tenured professor. But the reason he's so interesting, not that that doesn't do it, but the reason he's so interesting is because he's been keeping a close eye for years now on the BS happening on college campuses when it comes to these kangaroo courts that purport to be neutral arbiters in sexual harass and assault cases. Nobody wants to see women sexually assaulted or harassed. Trust me. I know. Um, but we've overcorrected in a way that's been really unfair the process to men. They don't have due process. They don't—they can't cross-examine. They can't cross-examine. They don't have the right to a lawyer in there. They don't have the right to discovery. They, have virtually, they, have a, they don't have a presumption of innocence. They, they, to the contrary, it's a presumption of guilt. And Casey's going to walk us through a couple of the latest cases because... While Betsy DeVos under President Trump tried to restore due process and undo some of the damage that Obama Biden did, uh, one of Joe Biden's first acts as president has been to promise he's going to restore it right back and um, take away the procedural improvements that were put in place to make the system fair for all. No one's saying women shouldn't get a fair fair hearing. This is about making sure the accused also gets a fair hearing. And you need to pay attention to this because it's wrong what's happening. It's wrong. And it's about to change back the wrong way. So that's Monday. Tune in. Subscribe in the meantime. Download. Rate. Five stars. A review would be lovely. I love hearing from you. I have to say I have come to the conclusion that my listeners are very smart. When I read the reviews, they're beautiful. Like they're well-written and they're thought out. It makes me feel really good about myself because I'm connecting with super smart listeners and Anyway, love it. Please do it. And we'll chat on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.